Here is a word from today's sponsor, Aura. If you Google someone, you can find out all kinds of personal information about them. This information is accessible because of data brokers who profit by selling your information to robocallers, telemarketers, spammers. You can use my link, https dot dot forward slash forward slash aura dot com. Aura is A-U-R-A forward slash Sean Atwood, S-H-A-U-N-A-T-T Wood to try two weeks for free and see how many data brokers are sharing your info. Also linked in my description box on this YouTube version or scan the QR code on the screen. Aura also monitors your emails and passwords to see if they were involved in a data breach and exposed on the dark web and gives you the recommendations on what to do. Aura has almost every internet safety tool you'll ever need all inside one app. All right, so we've got Paul with us today and he has his own YouTube channel. We're going to get to that. The link is in the description box. He's also got an item of clothing on here. But he's an ex-prison officer. So we're talking extremely hard-hitting stories, graphic content, warning. And a lot of our prison officers, you know, it goes back decades, but this is more recent. And prison culture has changed over the years. So you're going to get a more recent version of what's happening in the prisons. Now, before we go into his life story as to how he became an officer and take you through it chronologically, he's just going to give you a little example of a story from his time in prison where there were pool balls getting weaponized and stuff. And thanks, huge thank you for coming on, Paul. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Thank you. I was was shocked when I got the message saying, this guy wants to talk to you. And I was like, that's... (laughs) It's crazy, but I wanted to tell these stories. Shout out to Ricky Colleen. Yeah, it was Ricky. Yeah, it it was when he messaged me. Yeah. yeah. Um, So yeah, thank you very much, Ricky. So yeah, I guess um, the the story that I'll start off with is one of like violence in the prison service, Um, and I don't think a lot of people realise quite how violent it can be between prisoners towards prison officers. You know, the the level of violence is something I don't think even I was ready for. Um, and not long. And you, you're ex-military, so you were used to violence. Yeah, I guess it's, it's, it's a different kind of violence. It's a different level. I've been out fighting, like in my twenties, nearly every night in Germany as a soldier. But this is different. The level of violence and the feeling and the adrenaline that you get, it's it's almost addictive. And I'm sure as we get into the stories, you'll see that feeling's almost addictive. Um, and I hadn't been in the service long when a new wing had opened, um, a big, a big wing. They'd started building these huge wings, 200 plus prisoners. Um, the smaller wings, I think, had 90 on. Um, now, I'm trying to recall some stuff, so I can't remember exact numbers, but it was, it was around that. They were big wings. Um, and I was working in the segregation unit at the time. Um, so that's a, a prison within a prison. That's like lockdown for the American viewers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's... Um, 20, 23 hours behind your door, um, two doors to get into the unit. So it was a pretty secure place. Um, and the alarm bells would go off. So when you're in a prison, alarm bell goes off, everybody comes running. Everybody heads to where that alarm bell is going off because you just never know what's going to happen. And a lot of the time you get halfway there and they'll stand you down, but the alarm bell goes off, staff assistance on K-Wing. Um, and we went, we went belting down there. Um, and the seg wasn't that far from K-Wing, so it wasn't a huge run, but you had to go on an outside corridor. And when we got there, I was met with something that I had never 
seen or been involved in in my life and it was a wing full of prisoners and not every single one but not just one or two fighting 15 20 prisoners absolutely raging i mean it was they called it a concerted indiscipline it wasn't a riot but it was it was as close as I ever come to being involved in a riot. Do you know the backstory as to how the prisoners kicked off? So the wing was new and it had been it had been opened and set up and it was a kind of a pilot for this size this size wing and there was um there was always tensions on wings. No matter where you went, there was always tensions, but this was a new big wing um and it was um a drug treatment wing. So um, that's where the, the methadone and um, the subatex was given out to prisoners. Um, and I think there was a lot of newer officers on there. It was run by newly promoted senior officers. So there wasn't a great deal of discipline on there. Um, and what happens is on the drug treatment wings, people think that you say drug treatment wings, they're down there. All, all these all these addicts, these poor addicts that were going to try and detox, that's not what the prison service was like. Some of them were. I'm not saying everyone that was trying to detox, but a lot of it was going in, getting their substances, cheeking them, so hiding it in their cheeks. Um, cotton wool, we've seen this one, cotton wool in their throat. So when they drink the methadone, it soaks it up and then they regurgitate, squeeze it out, and then they sell that. Um, so it was, it was a lot of tensions between different gangs, different people dealing drugs, and it had just come to a huge head. Um, and we ran onto that wing and I wasn't very often frightened in the prison service. She didn't have time to be frightened, but I remember thinking, this is a bad situation here. So when you say it's come to a head, what do you mean? So there essentially, so what, what would have happened is, um, somebody hasn't paid for their subtax. And someone's gone into the cell and because the, the wings are so big, you'll have different little factions on the wing. So you'll have, um, and it was, it does come down to race. You know, you, you do have like your black gangs, your, your white gangs, your Nottingham gangs, your, your, your Birmingham gangs. You might have two Birmingham gangs. Uh, I think there were, I think the Birmingham gangs are the Burger Bar boys and the Johnsons at the time. You might have two different aspects on one wing. Um, and again, I can't recall exactly what gangs it was. But it would have been down to the fact that somebody owed someone. Someone had gone in and either, I don't think it was a pot in. I think it, it was a pool ball, um, lobbed across. Watch this straight across, hit somebody in the head. And before you know it, two gangs are just going health or lever on the wing. And then what happens is you send screws down there and that's going to calm it down. A load of screws running into a big riot. Suddenly you've got two gangs that all want to fight the screws. Um, and I remember being on spur two of the wing and one of my, one of my colleagues was there and this guy had got a pull cue and was, was ready to go. Um, and he had pulled my, my colleague had pulled his, um, his baton out. So you, there were extendable battens, racked it out and they were stood toe to toe. Um, and I remember a con, I can't remember his name, a con come out of his cell and shouted at the, the other con that had got the pull cue and he, he put the pull cue down. And as quickly as it kicks off, it dies down. And then suddenly there's just a flood of screws because we've come from quite close and we've been quick. But then before you know it, three, four, ten, suddenly the wing's full and everybody just scatters. Um, but yeah, poor, poor ball's getting thrown about. Um, poor Q's being brandished. 
you've always got to be aware that there's there's boiling water that that could be about so all people up on the landings throwing stuff down yeah it was it was a it was a scary time i think that was the closest i've come to it being a riot because you can go either way it could have gone all them screws have come on that one person with a pool cue swings a, a, a screw and before you know it you've lost the wing because for as many screws as you can get down there you've got 200 prisoners you know that's not the what keeps prisons running safe is the prisoners if the prisoners want to take over they're taking over when you were in the middle of that mayhem did your military career give you mental discipline yeah i it's i think that's essential when i first joined the prison service a lot of ex army a lot of ex uniform service ex raf um, because you do have that discipline. And it's not just the discipline to, like the self-discipline to, to go on there. It's about looking smart, presenting yourself, knowing knowing how to deal with the situation, how to stay calm. You've got to stay calm. You can't panic, even if you're like this underneath. So like pool balls are flying, people are beating each other up. Your adrenaline's going to spike, isn't it? Your heart rate's going to pick up. Is it your military discipline that just keeps you calm? Or do you have to like struggle a little bit and... I think depending on the situation, um, it can be a struggle. It can be hard to stay calm. It can be hard not to panic. Your heart is beating out of your chest. Um, you're 50p, 20p, and you're like, do you know what I mean? You're absolutely petrified. But I'll tell you a story about um, a um, an officer who was ex-RAF. Um, we used to call him unflappable. Nothing could flap him. He was the calmest guy. <laughs> like nothing could flap him. And we was on um, F-wing and a con walked up to the office. So the office was in between two spurs. So there was no, it was like a, uh, oh, not the mic, sorry. So it was a, a, a fishbowl. They used to call it the fishbowl because it's just a glass office. Um, and this con just walked up to it, opened the office doors, the, the screw sat there and just chucks a pot of excrement over him. So it would have been saved up. Um, it would have been excrement from three or four different people saved up in a pot all over him. The smell, the, and it was, and this, this screw just sat there, looked at him, got up and said, behind your door. Like, didn't react, didn't fly him, didn't, behind your door. And he went behind his door and he went, I'm going to go get changed. And he just, as calm as anything, just went, went up, binned all his clothes. Everyone had clean uniform. Everyone kept fresh uniform because you never knew when you was going to get blood or excrement or anything, you know. So yeah, just unflappable, just up, get changed. Do you know what possessed the prisoner to do that potting? So it would have been, I don't know the the full story, but it would have been, again, this screw has done something that's um, pissed off, sorry, that's annoyed, um, <laughs> that's annoyed that that con, or it wouldn't have been that con, it would have been another one. It would have been, he's done a drugs test on someone and found them guilty, so then they, they, um, they then pay the the poorer cons, the ones that are in drug debt, the ones that are in gambling debt, will, will, you know, will, will wipe your debt clean if you go pot this, this screw. And actually, now I'm talking about it, it was the wrong screw they potted. They didn't mean to pot him. They meant to pot another one. Yeah, yeah, I remember now. They, they, he got the wrong one. And then he ended up down in the block. We was down in the block at the time and this, this con ended up down in the block. Right, viewers. So I, th- I think you can see where we're going from here. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's just get a bit of backstory, Paul. Where were you born? Uh, Lincoln. Lincoln, that's on the East Coast. It is on the East Coast. And as a kid, did you aspire to be a soldier or any of this stuff? No. As a, I grew up in the, in the 80s in a working class family in a farming village. 
I didn't aspire to be anything. I just aspired to get through life one day at a time. Um, so I think what, what happened was, I'll, I'll keep it brief for, for joining the army, but I, I left school. I went to work with my cousin who was a window fitter. I got an apprenticeship, um, as a joiner, went to college, lost, lost my temper with a, a tutor at college. Um, over what? Um, sharpening a, a, a chisel. Like, like, randomly, he told me I was sharpening it wrong. My parents had just split up at the time. It was the week my parents split up. I was just turned 17. Um, and he started having a go at me because I was sharpening you. You're the one that's blunting in all these effing chisels. So I remember slamming it down, walking out the college in Lincoln and opposite the college was the army careers office. And I walked in <laughs> and said, I want to join the army. <laughs> and I was, I was 17 years old and I, I, I did. I, I, and that was it. What was your idea about the army before you joined? Um, I, do you know what? I knew one person that was in the army at the time. Um, and he was a paratrooper and he had left rugby and never come back. And I think at the time it was, it was going to be a career. I wanted to be a mechanic. That's what I wanted to do. I, I liked engines. I'd worked on motorbikes since I was a, a, a young lad. Um, my old man was a pretty good command, uh, mechanic and that's the, what I wanted to do. And people had said, you know, it's a good career. You'll, you'll get a, you'll be a mechanic. Did it enter your mind that you might be in areas of the world where people are killing and getting killed? Never. You don't, you never think about that. Never. It was, it was more of a, a career. You don't even think that you'll ever go to war. Or I didn't, certainly. I think people probably would if they joined now. I think it's a different world now to what it was in the 90s. So you joined the army, you're a bit idealistic. What happens next? Great career in the army. Um, Training, how was that? Yeah, great. It was, it was, it's mine. It, it's, it's psychological. And that's what they're, they're trying to push people out that aren't going to be able to make it psychologically. And it was, I mean, it's borderline bullying and I don't think they can do training like they used to now. Describe what they made you do. So, um, I guess there was, um, times when you would have to clear, uh, I'm trying to think of the right words. Clean your rooms. So your barracks, you're in a barracks, in basic training, the six or seven in your room, there's going to be room inspection. It's got to be immaculate. It's got to be perfect. Can't be anything out of place. And I remember a specific um, day where they'd come in and open my locker, took out a shaving foam, took the lid off it. Um, I don't know if this is a common knowledge or not, but when you use your shaving foam, put the lid back on, a little bit still comes out the nozzle and it had come out and it had spread slightly. And so open your mouth, stick your tongue out, out. Shaving foam, mouthful, shut your mouth, stand, stand still, and then they'll trash your entire locker. Um, any, so the, I remember cleaning your boots. Are your boots bald? Yeah, right, let me have a look at them. Not good enough, straight out the window. You spent four or five hours doing that out the window. They just want to break you mentally. Um, one, of the, one of the biggest things was what was called change parade, where you'd have to have a room inspection, have to be immaculate. Line up out front, so you're on parade. They go check the rooms. Rooms are great. Now you need to go get changed. You're in your, um, you're in your DPM. You're in your combat. Go put on your best, your best kit. Best kit. Right. Really nice. You've got 30 seconds. Go in, come back out dressed up with a mutant turtle. So you, you, um, DOS bag over your head and, okay, brilliant. Go back in, get back in this kit and change four or five times in the matter of 10 minutes. And then they go room inspection, 10 minutes. And you go in and there's clothes everywhere and you, you're fretting and you're running around and, and it's that mental, it, it, I'm going to say torture. It's not torture, but it's that all the time, high pressure. You, you know that if you, if you mess up, you, you're marching around the square for four hours. Did you see people break down? All the time. I broke down. I've, I broke what, down. What got you? 
Um, speaking to family. Speaking, I remember talking to my dad on the phone one night and was at Winchester and I can remember where the phone was. It's clear as day standing and I sobbed. And I said, I can't do this, dad. I can't do it. It's too hard. And he was like, well, if you can't do it, come home. And I was like, no, no, I can't. I want, I want it that bad. But I've seen so many people break in, in basic training. Only, I think they say 7% of people that go through basic training at the time went on to do trade training because it was just so hard. Trade training. Trade training, What's yeah. That? That's where, so basic training is where you learn your basic soldiering, um, where you learn your, your, your craft and your marching and all the basic stuff. Trade training is where you go and learn what it is you're going to do. So I was going to be a tank, uh, tank crewman. So you go, the first thing you learn is to drive a tank. So I went, how, my, how much fun is that? Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I, I passed my driving test in two days. So I'd never driven a car in my life. Um, down in Bournemouth. They put you through intensive training, two two days driving test passed. How and, do you drive a tank? Um, so they're huge, like very carefully. So you're inside, and it's like yeah. Well, describe I don't want to come off, but you you sat, and you've yeah. got just two pedals in front of you. So it's like an automatic car. You've got a um an accelerator and a brake, and then you've got two levers. <laughs> um, and if you want to go left, you pull it left. Yeah. If you want to go right, you pull it right. Yeah. And that's just a track vehicle. Does it feel it's, powerful? Because oh a tank. god, yeah, man. Honestly, <laughs> and, and the when they're when you're in the like a full tank, so when you're in training, they don't have a turret on. They're just the bait, the hull of a tank yeah. with like a, a box that the top guy. But when you've got a full tank and you're driving it around somewhere like Salisbury Plain and you, it's 72 ton and you're doing 50 kilometers an hour, 80 kilometers an hour, 50 mile an hour, them things are, and I, I miss that. I miss that today. I miss it today. What about firing a tank? I mean, I was, I was the best tank gunner in the British army officially. Um, so when we went over to Challenger 2, it was Challenger 1 that I trained on. When we went over to Challenger 2, I become a, um, a tank gunner and a gunner mech. So the, you did all the mechanical work on the guns. Um, and we went on to ranges and I was one of the first, I was the first person in a Challenger 2, although this is disputed. So if Rod, if Rod, you're watching, <laughs> you're wrong and I'm right. Um, there's, there was two crews. Um, and I was the first gunner to score a level six distinction on the ranges, hit every target straight through the middle. Wow. It was, and it is, oh man, that feeling. I had three rounds at one point. I had three rounds in the air at the same time, three Hesh rounds. So Hesh rounds are big, um, concrete rounds that you lob up in the air and they can go three kilometers and they go up and they come down. And the idea is they hit an area target and we managed to get three of them all in the air at the same time with, you know, you, you fire it, load it, fire it, load it, fire it. It's because the tank is so heavy then. When you fire, there's not a recoil or a vibration. Is it quite steady? The whole, there is a video. There is a video on YouTube um, from the firing days of my regiment. When you fire, the gun recoils right back. You see it and it's, oh, it's a, a huge, great big clat. And, oh, man. Do you feel it in the tank though? Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's, it's immense. And there's the smell, the smell of cordite as well. It's just like... <laughs> Honestly, it's it's immense. Anyone who's watching who's been in a yeah. tank when it's fired will know what I'm talking about. And there was you, you you smell it, and I don't want to get too graphic, but you smell it coming out of your body days later because you inhale so much of it. Wow. And it was called a cordite fart, and you would stink out rooms. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was immense. I loved that time. I loved it. So that was your training. Yep. Where'd you go next? So straight out. So I what? I. What year is it as well? Uh, so, okay. So I did my recruitment selection on my 18th birthday, which was um, October the 12th, 1998. Um, I was through my training. I finished um, August 99 
And by September 1999, I was based in Germany. So straight out to Germany. I had a month off, straight out of Germany to my regiment. I'd grown up in a little farming village. I'd never been away from my parents. And suddenly I'm living in Germany on my own. And I'm 19. And I'm, oh no, I would have only been 18 because it was September 99. So hadn't even turned 19. Um, Earlier you said in Germany you were fighting every night. Was that amongst yourselves? It depended. So let's <laughs> break it down like this. So you you would go to clubs and, and I'm not going to say it was every night, but it was regular. Um, you would be out on the town. We was out most nights and this is well documented. I, I won't say I had a drinking problem, but we drank all the time. And at one point we was, you could get through three litres of vodka in a weekend on your own. Um, and you would you would finish work at lunchtime on a Friday straight into the squadron bar. And some weekends you wouldn't go back to your barracks until the Monday morning. You would be out 24 hours for three days and you would go shopping, buy new clothes while you was out, um, get changed. I've slept in nightclub toilets for a couple of hours and then got up and carried on partying. And that was regular. That was a regular occurrence. Um, so you would go out and you might go to a Turkish bar. There was a lot of Turkish in Osnabrück where I was based. You'd go to a Turkish bar and look for Turkish to fight. And if you couldn't get a fight with them, you would go to a German bar and fight with some Germans. If you couldn't get a fight with them, you'd go to, you'd go to a squatty bar and fight with the Duke of Wellington regiment. And if you couldn't get a fight with them, then you'd just fight among yourselves. <laughs> what about the beautiful German women to calm you down? Um, so I was married to a German first time round. I don't want to talk about that too much because I'm married to a beautiful lady now. Um, but my, my first wife was German. Um, so yeah, it was... I had an ex-girlfriend out of uh, Leipzig. Oh. <laughs> Hello, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was good times. It was, it was amazing. And that was, my, that was where my, my whole persona was born. I was still only a, a, a late teenager. And I was, I was being molded by these guys who had been in the army for probably 10, 15 years. Yeah. So, so this is stealing you then to like an action-packed environment, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, you had to have your wits about you all the time in the army because um, bullying, I know we're not necessarily here to talk about the army, but bullying's rife in the army. Um, Did anyone try anything with you? Oh, yeah. yeah I've, I've been, I was assaulted more times in the army than I was in the prison service. And how'd you handle that? You just go about your business because you can't say anything. You can't say or do anything. I've got some really good friends who, who I was in the army with, who I'm still really good friends with now. And this, this is the difference between the army and the prison service. I went out a couple of months ago with guys I haven't seen for 20 years and it was like I'd never been away from them. Mm-hmm. Um, I still talk to most of them regular. They come and watch my podcasts and, and interact. And these are guys that I haven't seen for 20, 25 years. But there was elements of, we we would call it bullying now. You would call it bullying now, but it was character building. That's what they called it. You know, I remember someone booting my, my door in. I was living in Germany. They booted my door in in the middle of the night um, and they didn't even used to ask for a cigarette. They would just go, fag me. And that that was the that was the command to give them a fag. And, so these are like senior officers. These are lance corporals and corporals. So the two junior ranks, junior officers. Um, and if you didn't, you just got filled in. I remember I got beaten up with a pace stick once. So a pace stick is a stick that the drill people use to mark out their paces. And this guy kicked my door in, asked for a fag. I told him I didn't smoke and he just battered me. And I was, luckily I was under my covers, so it wasn't too bad. But yeah, he battered me with it. Wow. How long are you in Germany for? Got there in 99, left in, I think, 2003. What's who next? 
uh, Catrick for a year. What's that? Yeah, uh, Catrick's North Yorkshire. Yeah, oh, uh, straight up the A1, um, and it's literally just off the A1 before Scotch Corner. So was that more relaxed than Germany? This is what ruined the army for me. We moved back to the UK, um, and it went from being out every night with the boys, eating together, drinking together, um, sharing sharing rooms to Monday to Friday, nine to five. Everyone I was in the army with was from um, Stoke, Birmingham, um, Mansfield, Lincolnshire. You're an hour away at Catrick. People were going home at night. People weren't even, you know, it was a, he'd get there in the morning, go home at night. People weren't even spending time on the barracks. And it, it just, it destroyed it for me. And then they talked about re-rolling. So going from being a main battle tank regiment on Challenger 2s to a reconnaissance regiment on little CVRT tanks. So it just it just ruined it. Didn't you end up in Bosnia or anywhere like that? So when I was in Germany, so 2001, I did a tour of duty in Bosnia six months. Yeah, that was um, that was an experience. So you arrive in Bosnia, what was the first day like? <laughs> well, it's really strange because you fly you fly in. I wish I can't even remember the airport. I think we flew into Sarajevo, um, but I can't remember because you're hyped all the time and you're getting somewhere and you because you've got to be you've got to look immaculate, you've got to behave immaculate. You can't be seen to be doing anything out of turn. You're too busy concentrating on how you've got to be to really recognize your whole environment. But I remember that camp. I mean, we're living in what we call Corimex. So the the um, buildings you're sleeping in are just metal boxes with a bed and the toilets are just prefab toilets. There's no, it's not nice. Mm. <laughs> it's not a nice place. But yeah, it was, I mean, I can't even remember what I felt. What was your duty there? Um, mainly weapons searches, um, so you would go out on patrols um, to different houses from different people who had been in different militias or whether someone had been involved with different armies and you just searched houses for weapons. And Any hairy moments? Loads. Get to give us loads. a couple. Give so us a couple. Um, I remember going to the house of a for I think it was a general. I can't, I can't remember. I think it was a general um, in one of the militias and um, we we had to search that. And they were there. A lot of the time, the people that were involved weren't there, but these guys were there. So we're we're searching there. What do they look like? Normal people. They just look like normal people. And this and this is what when I come on to talking more about the prison, people are just people. Everybody has, you know, not everybody. That was going to be a wrong statement. People have two arms, two legs, a head, eyes. No, do you know what I mean? People are people, and they're just normal people. But they just looked Bosnian. And so, but, and, but they were big guys. They were big guys. They were the sort of people that you would expect to play the villain in a terrorist movie. Do you know, like dark, I don't want to get into race, but, but like dark, dark beards and angry looking. And we've got to search the house for weapons, and we we found some. We found a load of AK forty sevens in there. So you enter that house, and what do you do? Do you have a conversation with them? It's interpreters. It's all through interpreters. And the trouble is, you don't know whether you trust in the interpreters. Because, and it is the stereotypical thing of, you ask a question, the interpreter goes, blah, 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 blah. and then there's like a two minute back, blah, 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 blah. they said no. <laughs> They've just said about 50 words now. <laughs> what else did they say? So you don't know whether you really trust the interpreters for what they're saying. So you're searching these guys' house, and are they just sat taking that? There's nothing they can do about it, really. Nothing they can do about it. Because we're, we're all armed, and they know at this point in Bosnia, it's... I'm going to say it's quiet, but the war's over. 
You know, it's 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 almost peacekeeping. But it's still, you know, there's still, I think they said, over a million landmines un, unexploded. We're still finding AK-47s every day. We're finding mortars every day. I think when I was there, um, one of the patrols found a tank in someone's garden, like an old tank. Um, it was just, it was just insane. And when I think back now, I think it just doesn't seem real at all. So when you're taking these weapons, then there's no resistance to that. You guys just walk out with them. Yeah, we just walked out. There was, there was no resistance. There was one time when there was, um, so what they were talking about was the, the Bosnian army. They were trying to get them to relocate all their weapons to one central depot. There was like 10 depots. They wanted to put them all into one central depot. And there was one um, one faction that was refusing to. So they had said, okay, we're going to go live in a tank, fully loaded, point it over there. If by midday they haven't complied, then it's live engagement on on the uh so you sat there in a tank like i'm on on the gun and i'm looking through the site and i was the i was the um the captain's gunner at the time so i were like the lead tank sat there and i'm looking through the sites that window yeah yeah my midday like that it's quarter two (laughs) (laughs) and you're like two minutes to stand down they've they've complied and then (sighs) and then you're back an hour later, you're sat in the naffy eating a chip butty, having a laugh and a joke. <laughs> like it's, it's just crazy. Uh, all right, so you get. Why did you get out of the military? I ask myself that every day. <laughs> why did I get out of the military? I guess the the whole camaraderie thing had changed. I was I was 24. Um, I I guess I saw the life that a lot of people had that stayed in no no wife no kids no family they were just bitter old full screws who had done 15 years in the army and didn't really have anything i didn't really want that so um i guess i just wanted more out of life and i'd done everything i wanted to do didn't like being back in catrick and didn't want to be a recce regiment so there was all that stuff all in together that kind of pushed me out so why prison service because I come out of the army. <laughs> so I guess I did a year between the prison service and the army, or maybe a couple of years. I think it was two years. Um, I was doing dif- different jobs. I worked in some psychiatric units. Um, I did um, a year or so w- working on water treatment plants, servicing sewage works. And it was just, I hated it. And I missed the army so much. I miss the uniform so much, that life. And I think there was just a part of me that wanted to go back and do it again, but I couldn't go back in the army. This time I'd met, a, I'd met a, a fantastic lady who I'm still married to now. I didn't want to go back abroad. Tensions around the world were getting worse. People were going to Afghanistan regular. They were going to Iraq regular. It was tour after tour. And I knew what that was going to be like if I went back in. I didn't want that life. So the prison service presented itself to me. And I thought, why not? It's a disciplined service. How did it present? Do you know what? I was just job searching. I was just job searching. I saw it on, I think it was Indeed of all places. And I, and I remember saying to my wife at the time, I, sorry, she wasn't my wife. We weren't married at that point. I remember saying, oh no, sorry, I was married. Yeah, was, yeah, I was married. Um, and I was like, this, this looks really good. Money's equivalent really to what I'm on now. It wasn't great. I think it was 17,000 you started on. Um, but it might just be back in uniform. It might be back in the life. I'm going to give it a shot. So I did. What year were you when you did your prison training? 
I think it was 2006. 2006. Yeah. And what was that training like? Um, so the, the interview to get in was quite hard because you had to do a maths exam and an English exam. And then you had to do what was called, uh, I can't remember what they called it, but it was face to face scenarios. So you had five scenarios. You went into a room, there was someone in there and you had to deal with the scenario. Um, and it was all, I mean, I should have known back then. It was all virtue signal based. It was all, there's, there's a disabled person trying to get in my shop and I don't want them in here. And, and I'm this black guy and I'm being racially abused. How are you going to deal with it? So you had, and you just had to deal with it. And they were really good actors. They were all screws that had been like in for years. So then you had to deal with that. And I, I aced all that, but I failed the maths. I failed the maths exam the first time because like, um, I miss still kill I'm not the smartest guy. I'm not academic. I never was academic. I flunked maths at school and I failed it. And they gave me the option to resit it. So I studied maths. <laughs> I studied it because I wanted it so bad. Mm-hmm. That's who I am. If I want something bad enough, I'll work it. And I studied maths and I went in and I passed it the second time. And I went to um, a training place called Newbold Revel. Um, and it was almost like being back at school, but for prison officers, you had lessons that you had to go in. Um, you had, you had to do physical training. You had to do control and restraint training. I think it was two weeks, two weeks resident, residential, but it did not prepare me <laughs> for what I was going into. It did not prepare two me. Two weeks training. Two weeks training. And they don't even do that now, I don't think. I'm pretty sure when I got out, it was straight onto the shop floor. Where were you assigned to? What prison? Yeah. HMP Stockton. Was that? It's uh, Rutland, in between Leicester and Nottingham. Okay, um, so in the middle of the country. Yeah, middle of nowhere. There was two jails there at the time. There was Stockton and Ashwell, I believe it was called. Ashwell rioted to the point that they shut the prison down. They they destroyed it, and it never opened again. I don't even know if it's still there. I don't know if they flattened it or not, but yeah. So, so I assume you were assigned to a category of male prisoners. Yeah, so... I just want to talk about categories for for a minute yes. to do with prisons because people always there's always this massive misconception that there's A cat, B cat, C cat, and D cat, and A cat are the worst and D cat are the best, and it doesn't always work like that. So A category prisoners tend to be the the really violent ones, the ones who are the biggest threat to public safety. But one of the one of the huge factors in being in an A cat prison is your means and ability to escape. So you'll have the top gangsters there because they've got all the money and they've got all the people that want to bust them out. You've got the IRA, Al-Qaeda. So you've got the dangerous ones, but you go to a CCAP prison. People go, oh, oh, that was easy then. You didn't have anyone dangerous. Oh, we had the most dangerous prisoners. We had the street criminals who had nothing to lose. The 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 wife beaters, the thugs, the, the you know, the section thingy offenders that like touching people. <laughs> like we had the worst of the worst and lifers. Like it was, it, it wasn't an easy jail to be in. Yeah, what I've noticed is cause in America it's super max, max, medium, minimum. But in the highest security levels, there's the least violence because the people are so serious in there. When it does kick off, they know it's going to go down. In the minimum, medium, minimum camp, they've got hundreds of prisoners stuffed in a warehouse and it's mayhem and constant fights because. They're all trying to prove, you know, who's the biggest badass, yeah. especially the youngsters. Yeah, and, and it was just the same, just like that in, in a... So even at Stockholm, we had a lifer wing. The lifer wing was the best wing to be on. Mm-hmm. Them lifers aren't going to mess up. Most of the lifers on our in our jail 
had done already done 20 years or 30 years. Some of them had done 30 years. Some of them had been in prison longer than I'd been on the planet. And they're, wait, they're getting ready for release. So if they mess up, another 10 years on their sentence. You know, they, they can't afford to mess up. So they're the best prisoners to be working with. So you're saying what category are you at first assigned C. to? So you were assigned to category C. And what was your responsibility and role at that point? Well, when I first joined, I didn't have one. To be fair, I didn't even think I was going to stay because my first my first day, so I went to have a look round. And you go and meet a governor and a governor has a, a conversation with you. And then a prison officer shows you around. And I just... He, I can't even explain what it is like going into a prison. For a start, the security going in, they're the getting the keys, they're going through the searches. The, and when you actually get in there, it's gate after gate, door after door. And the smell is like nothing you could ever imagine. I can't, it's not a bad smell, but it's not a nice smell. It's just weird. So Sweat and bleach and piss. And... Yeah, just, and it's all in together and everywhere smells the same. And I've never smelled anything like it since. Like, and you, you can't equate anything to that smell. And it was just, so... I'm walking around with this guy. He's a, um, a one of the PTIs, one of the physical training guys that works in the gym. And he's showing around, you know, this wing's here, this wing's here. Uh, and then this con walks by. I hadn't seen any prisoners at this point. Um, and this con walks past and he, the, the PI speaks to him. You all right, Matt? Yeah, yeah, good, good. And he walks off and he says, uh, he's, he's one of our lifers. And he was dressed head to toe in white. And I went, ah, oh, is that why he's wearing all white? And the, the, <laughs> the screw went, no. That's because he works in the kitchen. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Mm. So he goes off and I think, I've just walked past the first person I've ever known who's a murderer. I've never, mm. and this guy's just walking past like he hasn't got a care in the world. <laughs> so this was on the way up to the where, what's called the centre. Uh, the centre is where like, all the governors spend their time. And I went in to speak to this governor, Governor L, I'll call her. And she might, I might as well have been a piece of shit. She just looked at me like I was, sorry, Right. A piece of dirt. She just looked at me like I was nothing. And she she said, she's a big, big woman. She said, why, why here? And I said, well, you know, I applied and there was several different prisons I could have gone to. There was Whitemore, which is Cat A. There's Watton, which is a, um, a prison where people like children. Um, and there was Ash, uh, Ashwell, which was next door. And then there was Morton Hall, which was women. And I said, Ashwell didn't have any places. I don't want to work with offender, them kind of offenders. I don't want to work with women and I don't want to go to a cafe. So like, I haven't got much choice other than here. And she went, well, Watton will be closer for you. You're from Boston. Said, yeah, yeah. Watton will be closer for you. And I said, well, I know, but I don't really want to go to one. Well, it'd make more sense for you to be there. And I'm thinking, she doesn't want me here. And I, so we had the whole conversation and, and I said, look, this, this is where I want to be. And she said, well, we'll, we'll make a decision in due course. Okay. So they made a decision. They let me go there. And I remember the first, my first day, mm-hmm. I went in and I said, what wing am I on? Oh, we don't know. So what do you mean you don't know? No one's assigned you to anything. And I was like, well, what? And, and I felt, I couldn't have felt any less wanted if I tried. So they said, just go down, just go down to the seg. Just go down to the seg and spend the day down there with them. Um, and that was, that was it. I stayed segregation unit then for the first four years that I was in the prison service. And the, the seg is, I mean, if a prison, if prison's unique, the segregation unit is double unique. You go in there, the screws that are in there are the hardest screws, the longest serving screws. And this was, this was then, not, not now. This was then. This was when it was a seg. It wasn't a care and separation unit. It, 
It was the worst of the worst, the worst prisoners. And this seg was like something like a dungeon. You went in, everything was painted grey. It, it just, it smelt mouldy. The screws in there all made me look like a dwarf. I mean, I'm not the tallest guy, but like some of these guys, six foot seven, 19 stone, and they're huge. And I remember walking in and this, most of them didn't speak to me. And one screw on me went, who are you? I said, I'm uh, Officer Hutchinson. I'm, I'm here for uh, first day. They sent me down here. All oh, right. Well, you might as well sit there and don't say anything. Uh, okay, I will. And I sat there and, and everyone just carried on buzzing around me. No one, no one really said anything to me all day. And a couple of people would come in and say, oh, you know, have you, got, have you got your book? Yeah, your Powell book that you have to fill out. Right, do this. Do you know how to make a brew? Yeah. Like, I just said, yeah. And they just sat and looked at me and went, well, we can go on then. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. So I went and made them all a brew, sat back down. Uh, anything I can do now? Yeah, when we finish these brews, we'll have another one. And, uh, <laughs> and I was, but I got, so I got in with them. Oh, sorry, I've not the mic. So I got in with them and it turns out a lot of them were, is that okay? I'm a, um, I got in with them and I've got personality. You know, I'm, I like to have a laugh. I don't mess around. I don't mix my words. I've always been like that. And they liked me. I was ex-military, so they liked me. And within a couple of weeks, I was, I was one of them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I was in, I was in with the block screws and I hadn't met my mentor at this point. So he was a block screw and he was off on annual leave. And I remember coming in and everyone had said about this guy, I won't say his name, but cause he's probably going to watch. Um, <laughs> and he said that they, they said, Oh, you wait till he comes back. You wait till he comes. Oh, you're in for it's they, everyone go. Who's your, who's your mentor? Uh, officer D. And that's, you just get that. Oh, have you met him yet? No. Oh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm panicking. And I remember walking in, I walked in the seg one morning and he was there and they said, Oh, this is, this is Hutch. Hutch, this is officer D. I said, all right. And he looked at me and he went, do you like tits? <laughs> I went, um, yeah, I guess so. And he opened the Sun newspaper and threw it on the desk. He went, have a look at them then and prove that you like tits. And I went, yeah, I do. I like him. He went, no, lean right over and have a look. So I leaned right over and I put my arms on the desk. I was having a look. And as I did, he went, whack, kidney shot right in the side, bent me over. He went, welcome to the seg kid. Like that. And I'm like that. Oh, and everyone's laughing. And that, I soon learned was cultural. That was it. Every And I must have taken 200 kidney shots in my career. And I probably gave 200 to other screws as well, because you'd just be stood. Someone would walk up behind you and just dig you one in the ribs. It was just, that was just the life. It was the way, it was the way it was. So then that put me into the, the life of the prison service in the SEG. So take us through your first day in the SEG. What responsibilities did you do? Oh, nothing. <laughs> you made, made tea, washed the cups, made tea, washed the cups, probably mopped, we probably mopped, and right, we're going to serve lunch. You go around and serve lunch and just stand with the screws while they serve lunch to all the cons. Don't talk to any of the cons. Don't unlock anybody. Don't put anyone on the... You just didn't do anything. Just watched. So was that your first major interaction with the prisoners was serving the food? Was, so yeah, that would have been, and you don't even have interaction because in the segits, they stand against the back wall, open the door, put the food in, shut the door, and that's it. There was never any real interaction Hey, we hope you're enjoying the podcast. It's a word from our sponsor, Shady Rays, and it is the season of giving. Get the perfect gift for that special somebody, yourself or both. Our friends at Shady Rays have you covered with premium polarized shades and quick swap snow goggles that won't break the bank. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers an unrivaled product. 
that's just as good as any expensive pair we've worn. Durable frames and world-class optics for all outdoor adventures. And Jen's blonde locks aren't getting tangled. In the tangle-free nose piece, so I can put it up in my hair like this. <laughs> no catching. With an extensive array of styles and colours, you're bound to find the perfect pair of Shady Rays sunglasses. And if you're into winter sports, their quick-swap snow lenses move effortlessly between full sun to low-light environments. That's not all. Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost or broken replacements. If you lose or break your pair, even on day one, they will send you a brand new pair, no questions asked. Exclusively for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving out a very merry deal for the season. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code SHAUN for 50% off two plus pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over a quarter million people. That's ShadyRays.com, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, for 50% off or two more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Link in the description box if you're watching this on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Back to the podcast. Cheers. Um, I can't, do you know, I can't remember the first wing that I went on to, but wings are very different to the seg. There's just prisoners everywhere. And I remember being on wings. I remember the first time I walked past a wing, it was when the, the first day that I'd been shown around, I remember walking past a wing door and there's all cons stood at the, the window looking out and there's a load of them and I can see them all on the wing. And all that's between me is, a, me and them is a door and a gate. And I remember looking and it frightened me. Like I'd been to Bosnia, but this frightened me. And I went home and I said to my wife, I don't know if I want to do this or not, because I can't imagine being in that on that wing with all them people. You're just going to go put me in there, like. <laughs> and I do remember the first probably three months or so being terrified. You go on a wing, you open a door, and if it's if it's nearly gym time, you open the door, and they're all trying to get out. No, no, you can't go loud. You can't go because it's not it's not time yet. Oh, just let us off, Gov. Just let us off. You're like, and you've got to tell thirty or forty people that are all trying to get to the gym. Sorry, right? Can I come past you now and leave you locked on the wing? It's intimidating. It is intimidating. In the early weeks then, was there any violence? Did anything go off? Um, so stuff went off all the time. It was it was a daily occurrence. I can't remember a day in the prison service where I didn't hear an alarm. I remember days where I didn't get involved in restraints, but some days you'd be restraining three or four or five times a day. Um, my first memory of seeing, or I didn't even see hearing violence, was in the old segregation unit. Um, so they built a new block, which was uh, most of my career was spent, but there was an old seg and we were sat in, um, adjudications. So adjudication is almost like, um, going to court. A prisoner does something wrong. They have to sit in front of a governor and the governor will take their privileges off them or they'll find them not guilty or whatever. So you sit in the, you sit in adjudication. How adjudication works. It's like a little room with a table. Governor sits at one end and there's a chair at the other and you walk the prisoner in and you say, give your name and number to the governor and wait to be seated. Okay, name and number the governor, they stand behind the chair. They sit down, pull their chair, and then you sit behind their chair with your foot on the chair. So they can't push the chair out and fly over the desk. And um I'm sat in there with this with this con and the other screw that's in there is one of the one of the big guys. And we're sat there and there's this room with a little door, a corridor, and then the cells are straight opposite. And this con's banging on this door, bush, bush, bush. He's giving F you and F this and I'll do this. And the governor, we'll call him Governor B, didn't even look up from his paperwork. He's just like that. And he just says to the other officer, Officer C, quieting him down. And I just kind of looked at him and went, yes, Gov. 
And he got up, this big, he unfolded himself out of a chair because he's huge, opens the door, he wear the keys, cell door opens, just a bosh, dosh, boy, just there loads of thudding and crashing and bashing. Cell door shuts, screw comes back in, sits back down, thank you. And that's it. Like, <laughs> I was like, what has just happened out there? Like, that was the most surreal, insane thing. Um, but I didn't, I didn't get hands on. So restraint was part of the job, um, putting your hands on prisoners because you're doing it for your safety. You're doing it for everyone else's safety. The first time that I was involved in a restraint, I remember the con, I can remember the con's name. I can remember the two other screws that were involved with me. And they said, right, we're going to, we're going to go and um, issue this guy some paperwork. He's getting a, a warning. So we went in, we opened his cell um, and he became really aggressive. He flew at one of the other screws. And at that point, it's restraint for the safety of everyone around you. So grab the con down on the floor, twisting him up um, and you use pain compliance. So it's wrist locks and we're down on the floor and restraining this guy. And I looked at his face and he was, he was screaming, but he wasn't screaming because he was angry. He was screaming in pain because we was twisting him up. And the other two screws just, didn't seem bothered and I'd been involved in a lot of violence I'd been involved in a lot of fighting I'd been to war but I'd never had three people on one and it I found it really hard the first restraint really hard psychologically really hard not physically because there's three on one and the, the other two screws are just they're just involved in it and I remember coming out afterwards and I felt I want to say a shame. I don't really know how I felt, but I didn't like it. I did not like it at all. But that become the norm. That become, there was restraints all the time. And the more you did it, the more it just become natural. The more you justified what you was doing, the more it become natural. Restraining the prisoner, use of force paperwork goes in, he become refractory. We was, we was defending ourselves. Uh, he was not complying. And before you know it, the prison service just comes a revolving door of violence. What was your most difficult restraints? So I can tell you, a, I can tell you a hard restraint. So this, there was a, there was a con who was American and he was an American footballer and he was huge. And not just huge, big, he was fat. And he was getting deported, but he was American in the UK on a Jamaican passport. So I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of how, but he was. So he was getting deported back to Jamaica. The only problem was he was homosexual. So if he was going to go to Jamaica, they were going to kill him. And there was two other people that were getting deported. And he says, they know that I'm, they know that I'm gay. Like, as soon as I get off that plane in Jamaica, they're going to kill me. You can't send me there because they don't accept that. And he was like, well, you're going. And he was like, well, I'm not. <laughs> well, you are. So he's in the seg and he's saying, and he's a nice, the nicest con. Like the cons, when, when we'll get into it in a bit, but cons weren't bad. Not all cons were bad. Nicest con, polite, friendly. He was decent. And he just said, I'm not going. What are you going to do if I don't go? Well, we'll put you on the transport. Well, crack on then. So we're sat in the, we're sat in the in the office down the seg, and I remember there was there, were, there must have been six of us down there, and some of the big lads. I was like, "What we're gonna do? Like, we're gonna have to restrain him." I was like, yeah, but 
how? How do you restrain someone that size? We'll just go in and do it. So we did, we went in, and normally for a restraint, if it's a planned restraint, you get kitted up, you take shields, you have a team of four, and you have a team of four on standby just in case it goes bad. We had, I can't even tell you how many people were down there. We didn't get kitted up because he wasn't doing anything wrong. Like, you, you can get kitted up if people are refusing to come out of the cell or whatever, but he was just, he had said he wasn't going, but he wasn't really doing anything wrong. So it wasn't going to be, so we opened the door and we said, come on, it's time to go. Not going. Oh, not going, y'all. I don't want to bust the accent. Not going, y'all. Well, okay, if you don't go, we're going to restrain you. Okay, crack on. So we, we, we jumped on him. And I mean, the screw that was on his head. So the first thing you do is hand on the back of the neck, head down. So they're straight down, head between the knees. Couldn't bend him over. Couldn't, couldn't bend him forward. There's two of us trying to get his left arm, me and another screw. Couldn't move his arms. His arms were like that. We couldn't move them. So this went on for about 15 minutes in his cell fighting him. Con, and it was staff assistant segregation unit. So everyone's coming down. We're trying to fight this con and he's not even fighting and he's ragging the biggest guys around like they're nothing. Throwing two people on one arm against a wall and we're freaking fighting him. And then he just changes and drops to the floor and, and stops responding and just lays there. So we restrained him and was holding him in restraints, but he's just laid still. And we're like, what are we going to do now? Well, we're going to have to carry him. Like, this guy weighs like 20 stone. I'm knackered. I've been fighting him for the last 20 minutes. <laughs> so we, so there's, there's a technique in control and restraint for carrying. You don't have to pick them up. You do it in a certain way. So we got him in the, in the position we needed to. Um, I, I, if I remember rightly, it's, four, it's a four-man carry. But even four people carrying 20 stone a dead weight is hard. So we carried him out the cell. We got him through the first door, through the next door, and someone went, rest. And that's when you stop to rest. So we stopped to rest and some more people come in to swap over. And as we stopped to rest, we relaxed. He went, bosh, kicked up, kicked this screw in the face, knocked him flying. So then we had to jump on him again, fighting him in the middle of the corridor. I mean, I can't even tell you how many screws there was. So, I mean, this went on for like an hour, probably an hour fighting him in the corridor before we finally gave up, right? The funny thing is, we got him out the back door of the seg into the yard where the, the transport was waiting. They had sent civilian transport to pick him up. Two civilian, like, um, G4S, two G4S officers. Like, and they went, what are we going to do if he kicks off? Like, it's yours now. <laughs> like, you lot, you're in Like, if he kicks off. <laughs> That restraint. So most restraints was three staff, four at most. That restraint, there was 26 use of force paperwork went in. It took 26 staff, nearly two hours to move him 100 yards. Do you know what happened to him after you handed him over? That's gone. They're gone then. They're gone. And that's the end of it. And then you go back in and you put the kettle on and have a brew and sit and talk about it. Back to normal. What was your second most problematic restraint? Um, I remember, so I can tell you a couple. This, I didn't restrain this guy, but I was there for this. And this, this leads on a little bit to how the prison service started to change. So, um, yeah, I'll tell, I'll tell you this one first. So there was a, there was a con that was down the seg because he was getting BK'd. He was getting recategorized for his level of violence. He had been in the jail before. He got previous escape attempts. He was very violent and they shouldn't have sent him to us. So they put him in the seg. Big Scottish guy, ex-para, huge he was. Um, and tall. And he was in the seg. And he was saying, well, I'm not going back to BCAT. I'm not going to try and destroy the Scottish accent. But he was like, you, uh, flip you, all that. So I, I said to the, the screw I was on with in the seg, I said, what are we going to do? Are we just going to get kitted up and go and drop him, go biff him? 
It's like, we're going to have to do this one by the book. Because you didn't always. Sometimes you just went in and dropped him. We're going to have to let the 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 centre know, this guy's really dangerous. We've got to do it all properly. Okay. So we rang the centre up and this governor answered, female governor, been in the prison service 30 seconds, like gone fast track governor. And she was like, have you tried talking to him? Yes. Yes, we've tried talking to him. Currently, he's naked. He's covered head to toe in his own poo. And he's refusing to come out of his cell. He doesn't really want to talk. She went, well, don't get kitted up yet, fellas. I'll come down and talk to him. I was like, okay, that's fine if that's what you want to do. So she comes down. She comes in the seg. Right, what cell's he in? Uh, cell one, first cell on the left, spur one. Went, she went up. She knocked on his door like she was knocking on a teenager's door. She went, Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith, it's the governor speaking. And all you heard come back was, flip off your wee Anglo-Saxon slag. <laughs> and she just turned. She turned to us and went, I don't think he wants to talk. It's like, <laughs> no, I don't think he does. <laughs> so they got kitted up. Um, so full protective gear and then over, over um, stuff on as well because it's dirty protest. Um, I I didn't go in. I don't know why I didn't. I just wasn't part of the team. I think it's because there was big screws there and I wasn't huge. And I remember listening to him fight him and it took four big screws a good 15 minutes to subdue him. And when they brought him out, he was naked. He was covered in... And it stunk. But that was... When you talk about the hardest restraints, that could be daily. That You know, hard restraints weren't one. Didn't just have one or two. I, I could tell you hundred stories of restraints, of restraints where it's been a blood protest, restraints where it's been a dirty protest. What's a blood protest? Where somebody cuts themselves, lets the blood out, and then just spreads it everywhere. And they're the worst. They're the, I, I take a dirty protest over a blood protest all day long. Describe going into your worst blood protest. So it was an old guy. Um, can't remember his name, but he was about 70. Um, and he had been ho- a homeless guy for years. He liked being in prison because he got free food and free meds and looked after. And But he was a little bit um, odd, obviously, because... He would he would cut himself like on his on his arm, and then he would push a a spoon underneath the skin to keep the wound open, and then he would let the blood out into a container. And then um, I remember we, we I was doing a count one day, and I opened his flap to have a look in, and you could just see blood everywhere. And I don't know if you know how much blood spreads. You only need a little bit, and he was getting pints of it. And spreading it all over his cell, all over the floor. He had written Nazi screws on his wall in in blood. And the floor was just congealed blood. And we had to go in and restrain him and bring him out. For his own safety as well as anything else. And I remember slippery. It's slippery. There's, it kind of goes like jelly. Oh my, it's much more like a gip thing. And the smell, the smell of a blood protest is like nothing I can describe. I can taste it now sat here. Like have, you ever, have you ever had a sore throat when it's a little bit raw at the back? And it's like that all the time. And the, yeah, iron. And it's just the worst thing. And it goes everywhere. And you're wearing white shirts. So it's, it's absolutely horrendous. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nasty. So you'd, so you'd rather go to a poo protest one than a, a blood protest one? Yeah, so a dirty protest, I remember a con who was on a dirty protest in the seg and said, we're going to go, we're going to go get this, uh, we're going to get him out, we're going to put him in, because they had dirty protest cells. So when they dirty protest in a normal cell, you put them in the dirty protest cell because then you just leave them in there to do whatever it is they want to do. Um, 
and we went in to get this we went in to get this con and we went down opened the door he stood in there and he's he's naked there's poo everywhere and he's got his hands out so he comes in you've got a shield so you have a big shield to protect yourself and um i was i was observing and uh, they said to the con what you got in your hands i don't know if you'll see this on camera but he's got his hands out like that and he opens his hands like that, and he looks he goes nothing and the screw went what you got in your hands and as he looked at his hands again the screw with the shield just hit him with his shield bounced off the back wall hit the floor and as he was coming down they just dropped the shield clotheslined him jumped on him and they're rolling around and there's just there's excrement everywhere the guy's got his face in it so he's on the floor he's got his face in it and as we're going we realise he's packed all his stuff into bags so all his personal stuff he's got in carrier bags on his bed so it don't get covered honestly and then so that so that con we did that we went in he went into dirty protest they got him off his dirty protest about two weeks later I was on the meds hatch um and I could hear him talk. He didn't know I was in. He didn't know I was in the meds bit. He was in the queue. Couldn't see me around the corner. I could hear him talking. And he says, uh, "This con goes. I tell you now, if they don't give me my meds, I'm kicking off. And whatever screws in there, I'm going to flatten him." And this this other con who had been on the date of protest says, "You don't want to do that, mate. You'll end up in the seg." He went, "Yeah, I'm not bored about the seg." And he went, "Honestly." He said, they hit me so hard with a shield that I pissed myself. <laughs> he goes, you don't want to go down there. It's brutal. <laughs> so yeah, it was, uh, but that was, that was the worst of the worst. You know, when it was, when it was like that, it was bad. Every day you go in and it's a job. It's just, you go on a wing, you go into the seg, you serve the food, you go to the seg. It's just, it's just a job and you don't think about the other stuff. You just don't. What were your biggest challenges in the first year? Uh, relationships with um, other screws that was that was a real challenge old school screws because old school screws some of them didn't talk to new people for the first year I remember walking in I was going from the old seg to the MDT unit which was the mandatory drug training unit and I got my keys out I was just about to open the door and I heard keys in the other side of the lock and the lock opened and the door opened and there was an old school screw come through and he saw me with my keys in my hand waiting to go through the door. He looked me in the eyes. He turned his back on me. He shut the door. He locked it. He barged past me and he carried on walking. Didn't even acknowledge that I wanted to go through the door. Didn't try and hold it open. Didn't speak to me. And that was that could be a daily thing. You could be on. You could be working in the seg with three screws who don't even acknowledge you're there. <laughs> and then they'll just go, and then suddenly they'll just go, have you not made a brew yet? So that was a real challenge. And I think understanding that prisoners are just human beings. And there was bad ones. I'm not going to sit here and, and kiss the ass of every every prisoner because there was bad prisoners. That's why they're there. They've, they've committed crimes. They've done some horrendous things. But some people that are in there have made mistakes. Some people in there have got in a fight in a nightclub like I did so many times as a teenager and hit the wrong person and they've fallen wrong or they've lost their temper and they've picked up a glass and thrown it or they've they've stolen something. I'm not saying stealing ever is right or wrong, but they've they've made a bad judgment call. They've sold drugs when they when it's illegal, you know? But they're not bad people. They might have committed crimes, but some of them are decent. And I think trying to process that in my mind, my understanding of what a criminal was trying to un- process it when I'd spent so long working with these old school screws. They hated every con. We hate cons. They hated cons. They hated governors. They hated other screws. Most of them hated themselves. They just sat miserable and grumpy all the time. And there was there was screws that were like that. They were just grumpy, miserable all the time. So finding that balance was really difficult. 
she writes there is a variety of prisoners but then you've got the prisoners who are classified as adults attracted to kids yeah did you have to interact with them oh yeah oh yeah yeah um so this was a real this was really hard working working with not just adults attracted to kids but adults that would force themselves on women or on men and they were they were among us people seem to think that they all go to jails that are spe- specifically for them but they don't so i don't know if it's still the same but back then only if you admitted your crime did you go to a jail specifically for that crime because then you could do the treatment programs you could do um i'm, I'm assuming i could say the sex offender treatment program it was actually that's what it was called um, but if you didn't admit your crimes, you just went to a normal jail. So there was loads of them. And So let me get this straight then. So if they admit the crime, they go to the program, and that's all them in the program. Yeah. If they don't admit the crime, they go to the general population. Yeah, yeah. In a cat C prison. In a cat C prison. So they're mixing with all the other prisoners. Yeah, because they didn't need to do any, because they weren't going to do the programs, so they didn't need to be there. So what happens when the other prisoners find out what they're in for? <laughs> they get beaten up. They get they get shanked or slashed or. Did you come across that? Yeah, I saw that loads. I saw it loads. I remember um, a, a kid that was in for being attracted to his own children, and oh. he'd done some horrendous stuff. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that's not just. No, I tell you, I, I don't know how graphic you want me to tell you, but there was. So I'll tell you this one first. Guy was attracted to his own children. He was he was an Asian fella. Um, he just went about his business. We knew what he had done. We knew what he was in for, and he was so nonchalant about it, like just no, never admitted it, and just went about his business. He knew we knew what he was, but he just associated around the wing, and somehow, obviously, screws wouldn't tell the cons because that would be a breach of protocol. But somehow cons found out what they had done and then they would get they would get um boiling water thrown at them or they'd get slashed the worst slashing i've seen was a slashed face of a sex offender um and it was two blades in a toothbrush down his face and it went from um his temple to his chin uh, to his chin here and when we when we got to him it was flapping open and you could see all the fl- you could see his teeth and it was all flapping but you couldn't. They couldn't sew it because that's why they put two blades. So they put two blades in a in a toothbrush, so it does two wounds because then there's nothing in the middle to sew it to. And it was there was blood all down him, and it was just it was all hanging out, all out. And oh man, it was it was horrific. How does that get treated then? If it won't, well, the, the hospital will when it go when they go to hospital. I'm I'm assuming if I remember right, he ended up in the seg on what's called Rule Forty Five Own Protection because then everyone knew what he was. And it was if I remember, it was just steri strip like like gluing it together and then patched up. Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty nasty. But what he had done was pretty nasty. And again, I'm not saying that anyone deserves anything, but people who are watching can make their own mind up. You know. Any other stories like that? Yeah, I've got. Uh, so this wasn't a, this wasn't someone that was attracted to children, but this was a guy who was he had mental health issues. Um, he had suffered. He was ex ex squaddy. There was a lot of ex squaddies inside, um, and he had mental health issues. He had got PTSD, um, and he was quite angry and violent a lot of the time. And when he didn't get his own way, he would he would kick off and he would get restrained and he would put it back in his cell. And I remember being sat in F wing office, like the fishbowl again, this is where the guy got potted. Um, I sat in there and I seen him coming up the corridor and he's got his hand like that and in his hand there's blood all down his face. And I'm like, what is going on here? And he was from the Northeast. He was, he was a Geordie. I, I can't do a Geordie accent. I'm not going to try. And he just went like that and he held his hand out and 
half his ear, like the bottom half of his ear was in his hand and he had just, he had hacked it off with a razor blade and he got it in his hand and he was like, I need to go to hospital. I've, I've cut my ear off. So I was one of the ones that took him to the hospital in, in a taxi. You go in, in taxis to the hospital, um, all cuffed up. You cuff to the prisoner and you go out. And he thought they were just going to sew this bit of ear back on. Like, and they went, well, we can't sew your ear back on. And it's like, what happens now then? They're like, we've got to cauterize it. So I sat there in the thing and they've got this, uh, I don't know if you know what cauterizing is, but it's like a welding tool. And they're just going, dzz, 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 and the smell, you can smell burning flesh. And he's screaming. And they did, they, they kind of welded his ear back together. Yeah, it was, uh, and that smell, there's, a, there's only one other time other than sort of the bloodletting, there's probably loads of times where the smells got to me. But the worst one was when we took a con, and he was a really decent con, um, but he had been buying steroids within the jail because obviously there is drugs and things that get in the jail. Um, and he had been injecting into his into his backside, and it had gone septic. He had got a, he, and so we're in the taxi with him, uh, and he's a he's huge, huge, great big lung black guy big long dredge sat in his taxi and he's kind of he's having to sit like that because he can't sit on the arse cheek because it's septic and the smell like is like nothing and it was like it was a hot day we was in a taxi the windows are all up oh man that and, and it was just it was horrendous and things like that we just i'm saying now laughing about it because it's it's just the norm it's just what you do what do you do today oh, i took a prison to hospital who got a septic bum cheek <laughs> like it was just and that that level of violence and injury and that was just the norm. So with going back to the adults who were attracted to kids then, yeah. did any of them get killed? No, I've never seen anyone get killed. Um, I mean, I, I've heard stories of other prisons and, you know, you've, you've spoke to people as well. I, I've never known them get killed, but I've seen some really serious violence, a lot of serious assaults. Um, but not, and there wasn't any, there, there was a couple of deaths when I was at the jail, but there was never anyone murdered. I was that's one, I suppose that's one thing I say. I've never seen anyone murdered, but it was. So when we talk about these people, I don't think, and this is something that's really close to my heart. I work with teenagers now. One of the reasons I work with teenagers now is because I think the, the, um, the real pandemic, are we allowed to say pandemic out loud on yeah. YouTube? I don't know. The real pandemic in the UK is the, people that are attracted to children pandemic because we don't we don't realize what the full scale of it is we really don't and uh, and i know that you've done a lot of stuff around a, a prominent figure within um you know within the bbc and things but like the the amount of these people that was in this jail and some of the stuff that they were doing we had one con so i've got this story that i'm going to tell and it links in on the two so we had one con who had got who had been found, it was his first offence, right? And he had been found with 165,000 indecent images of children and animals on his computer. And so I won't tell you his, I won't tell you his sentence yet. So 165,000 indecent images. And what they said was that the police task force that had to deal with it said that they were the worst, they were class, I can't remember how they class them, I think it was three. They were class three images. Some of the people that had dealt with it had to have counselling because it was depicting torture and murder of babies. Right? So, we'll leave that one there. We'll come back to that in a minute. I'll tell you this story of 
we got a call in the seg one day. Um, it was me and Officer P was on. And they said, you've got to come down to K-Wing. We've got these two cons. They're getting B-catted, Hussein brothers. Um, you've got to come and get them. You've got to come and get them. We need to take them to the seg because they're, they're a serious risk of escape and they've got all this money and blah, blah. I said, like, okay then. So, so Mr. P says, uh, come on, it's me and you'll go get them. I said, well, that's two of them. That's two of us. I said, yeah, but like, normally for one con, you take at least three or four. Nah, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. We'll just go lift them, bring them down here. I'm sure they'll be fine. I was like, okay, then we'll do that. So I went down to K-Wing. What, what cell? Um, say cell K-30, last one on the right. The double cells were all at the end. So officer opens the flap, looks in. You always look in before you open the door. Looks in, shuts it. He looks at me, he says, Uchi, what cell? K-30. K-30. He said, this can't be the right cell. Come in, let me have a look. Open the flap. And there's this <laughs> little Asian fella. Like, he can't be much more than nine stone. And he sat there with his legs crossed. He's got a bowl of noodles like that. He's just eating and watching telly. I was like, it's a bit odd. All right, let's go in. So we went in. And there's him in there. And in the corner, there's his brother. And they, there can't have been much more than five, two, five foot three between them. They probably didn't weigh as much as Mr. P put together. Are you the Hussein brothers? That wasn't their real name, by the way. Are you the Hussein brothers? Yes, officer. How can we help you? It's bet the most, the, the poshest English accent you've ever heard. And I looked at Miss Rio. I said, is this a wind-up? <laughs> what is going on here? So we lifted him. We started taking him around at the sack and was like, do you know what this could be about? And this is, well, we suppose it could be about our confiscation order. I was like, well, how much is your confiscation order for? I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I've got some exciting news to announce. Michael Francis is coming back to tour the UK in 2024. The remade Mantor, the Michael Francis story. Michael Francis, once named one of the 50 most significant mob bosses in the USA by Fortune magazine, and a former member of the notorious Colombo crime family, will take you deep into the world of organized crime, sharing captivating tales and insights into the Mafia's past, present, and future. Join us for an unforgettable evening with Michael Francis, the original Goodfella, as he exclusively sits down with myself, Sean Atwood. With me as the host, there's going to be a no-holes-barred exploration of Michael Francis's life, including his numerous arrests and jury trials that ultimately led to his pleading guilty to a federal racketeering charge, a 10-year prison sentence, and $15 million in restitution. You will have the unique opportunity to ask questions during an audience Q&A session, making this event a must-see for true crime enthusiasts and anyone curious about the underworld. Don't miss this explosive in-conversation with Michael Francis. Live on stage in the UK, this exclusive in-person event will be held in various locations in the UK, Ireland and Scotland. Link in the description box below this video if you want to grab yourself a ticket. Back to the podcast. Cheers. 20 million each. So you've got 40 million pound between that. Yeah, they said, yeah, but we haven't got that. So what happened was they were inside for importing um, computer equipment, but not paying the tax or the importation tax. And they got people that are on customs and excise on their payroll. And they'd got they'd, they'd made millions and millions, but they were both very clever men. So they'd sat in open court and the judge was like, right, we, you know, we, you're going to represent yourselves? Yes. Okay, so what would you like to say? Well, I'd like to start by saying, and they started reeling off the name of all the undercover officers within um, the the 
uh, customs and excise. And they're like, you can't name them because it was, it was all top secret because they're undercover. So the judge just went 20 years, gave them 20 years. So they've both got 20 years and they've got 20 million. So their means and their thing for escaping. Okay. So they got 20 years for evading tax, right? The guy with 165,000 indecent images of children. How, how many? How long? I'm going to guess he got like two years. Nine months. So 20 years for tax evasion. And I'm not saying it's right, but the minute you start taking money off the government, you're screwed. It just shows you the biggest mafia, isn't it? It also shows that they do not prioritize crimes against kids and women. They no. cry prioritize the wrong stuff yeah this guy with the indecent images as well he got restrained in the visits room because he sat near the area where the kids played and he was playing with himself no. and he got restrained yeah yeah that's how he got outed for what he had done he should have been getting life yeah he he was a disgusting creature that is absolutely sickening disgusting creature and people in the chat in the comments are going to be outraged by this let us know what you think about that Man, that monster getting nine months in the comments in the chat, please. Absolutely disgusting. And it wasn't just him. Was, I, I was working in the seg with a guy, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use... I want to use his real name, but I can't. can't no real names. <laughs> I wish I could, because... Mm. So well, let's just call him Earl. Um, because he, he looked like this... You remember that My Name is Earl, or the TV program? He looked like, it looked a bit mm. like, like a little hick hillbilly. He was horrible. And his rat face, and he got like a little bald patch, like Friar Tuck. And he was in for... Um, forcing himself upon a 14-year-old girl in a park. And he had done his time. He was end of sentence. So we had to release him. End of sentence. There was no there was no anything. But he had got these conditions that he couldn't return to the, his hometown. Um, and he was open. And he, he'd say, I'm, I don't care. I'm going back there. And you'll never see me again until next time I'm in here for doing it again. And he would openly say that. And offender management had tried everything to have to keep him in. But you couldn't because the sentence is up. So offender management rang his local constabulary and said, you know, you've got this guy. He's not allowed back to you guys. He's got a hostel in this town that he's saying he's not going to go to. And they went, oh, yeah, we know him. We, we, we know who that is. Notorious. We'll send an escort. We'll send the police to come and get him. So we didn't tell him. Morning that he was getting released. Walked him to the gate. And instead of taking him through the, the, the human gate, the person gate, the door, the big gate opened where the vehicle was. And he, he kind of, he's, he's looking at us like this horrible little rat face. And uh, they opened and there's these two big coppers. And they looked at him. He, they said, Earl, one of you. They, they looked at him and said, Mr. Earl, you're coming with us. Like, and his face just drained. And these coppers, you never see anything like it. Like they were huge. And they grabbed him and they chucked him in the back of this meat wagon. And the gate shut and off it went. So we went back down to the sag. We sat in the sag and the phone rings. And it's one of the girls from the admin block. Now the admin block overlooks the gate going out. And she said, uh, have you just released one? I was like, yeah, yeah. It was uh, um, Earl. She went, it's just pulled over on the side of the road, the police van has, and it's rocking. And so the van was going boom, boom, boom. It's cops were bashing him from side to side in the van. So I don't know what ever happened to him, but we never saw him again after that. So, but that's what, that's the, that's what the, the people that like children, that's the emotion it evokes in everyone, in, in, in civilians, in officers, in, in cons, in everyone, because it's just vile. Have you got any stories about them with heartwarming endings like that one? 
Um, <laughs> there's loads of loads of heartwarming endings. <laughs> oh, so there was one guy. This this is really tragic, and this is part ah, tragic. I won't say tragic, but um, so the we release people when they get released. They they have to go and um see their probation officer. Um, and we had this guy who was getting released, and his probation meeting had been set for two o'clock in Bedford. Um, and I mean, we was in, um, Oakham. So it was, it was a good trek to Bedford from there. Not, not huge, but a good trek at two o'clock it was, but something had happened. I don't know what it was. Um, but for some reason they weren't opening the gate, so we couldn't get released. So we were sat there waiting and he didn't get released until I think it was 20 past 12. Um, oh no, it was after lunch. He got held up to lunch. So then they couldn't release him because it was lunch. That's right. They couldn't release him until it was lunch, after lunch, quarter past one. All, all unlock come. So he got released from HMP Stocking at quarter past one. He had to be in Bedford at two o'clock. Didn't make it. They breached him. It was a breach of license. Straight back in. <laughs> Straight back in. And he was like, well, what, can, what can I do? But the, the, the best one for straight back in that I remember was the guy who got released in the morning. And it was a Wednesday morning he got released. And um, Wednesdays, Wednesdays mornings were legal visits. So that's when the police come to see you or when the solicitors come to see you or parasites, as we used to call them. Um, so he gets, he gets released and he goes out and instead of using his money that he'd been given to get a, to get a taxi and a train ticket, he tried stealing a car in the car park with all the police visiting that day. And he got arrested in the car park <laughs> trying to steal a car. And he, he, when he come back round and come back in, cause we see it's like a revolving door. You see the same people and we're like, what are you doing back? Oh, I got, got caught in the car, didn't I, Gov? Like, and then they're just, just normal. They're just back in. Um, so, yeah, that was that. Was that. So I, I was touching on how sickening some of the stories are and how disgusting some of these individuals are. And we're not just talking about offences uh, of a sexual nature towards people. It's the level of abuse there is towards people in the UK. And we had one one lad... Um, and he was, he was part of a gang. He was, he was a gangster. He was a gang banger. Um, I can't remember what town it was, but it was one of the black gangs and he was in with all his brethren and they were giving them fist bumps. But what they didn't realize was that he was in for emotional and physical abuse to his wife and child. And his child was four years old. Um, and this is, this is one of the cases that stopped me reading what people were in for because, it really affected me at the time. And one of the one of the crimes that he had committed was his four-year-old didn't want to eat his tea. So he force-fed his child food until he made the child physically sick. And then he forced the child to eat its own vomit. <sighs> Disgusting. And this is this is someone that everyone was everyone was loving. All the other cons loved him. He was one of the street gang, wasn't it? And they had no idea what it was he was in for. No idea. And that kind of thing, them kind of vile acts, violence towards their wives, violence towards their children, it was just it was so common. Did he get outed? Um so he didn't get outed for exactly what he had done, but what happened was I'd got a good relationship. So what I say good relationship. What you do is you've got to you've got to make friends with with these cons. You're walking the landings on your own with two hundred prisoners. You can't have everyone hating you. You've got to be half decent. If you're not, you, you get potted. You get assaulted. You get you know. It's just so you've got to try and get on. The best way to get on is give your better cons, but your stronger cons, good jobs, wing jobs, where when everyone else is banged up, they're out. 
They're out cleaning. They're loving it. They get the cleaning done and then they're out on the landings. It, they're great jobs. Servery workers, an even better job because you get the pick of the food. So I would have decent cons doing my jobs and two or three of this lad's boys that were in his gang were my wing cleaners. And they were like, are you going to give my boy, you're going to give my boy a, a wing job? No, we're not getting a wing job. Oh, you've got him. No, we haven't. Why not? Well, I'm not going to tell you why not, but don't give people like him wing jobs. And the fact that we we wouldn't do it put them on high alert that there was a real issue. Um, and that wasn't one of the incidents where anyone ever got told what he did. But I remember him not staying on the wing very long <laughs> after that. Um, <laughs> just because that was, you know, they as soon as they think, as soon as someone thinks it, that's it, they're gone. How difficult is it to manage the gangs in prison? Very. It's very difficult. Um, You've got to be very clever with who you place where, who goes on what wing. You can't end up with too many of one gang on one wing because suddenly they're all they're all in it together. But then they'll form their own little gangs within prison. They'll, you'll have the black community and the white community and the Asian, and that's that's how it is. And they they have to manage themselves because we can manage it to an extent. As an officer, you can manage it to an extent. You can you can stick to the rules. You can stick to the regime. You can bang people up when you need to. You can restrain people when you need to. But my very last role within the prison service was working on an induction wing. And I walked a landing of 200 prisoners on my own. Just me. So I'm not keeping that whole wing calm myself. Like my presence on there with a radio and a baton isn't keeping it calm. The... The prisoners that want to behave and want to get on and want to get released, who want to keep it calm. That's why you've got to have your strong people on the serveries. Um, I guess, you know, I would have two good servery workers. I had two really good servery workers when I was on that wing. Two travellers who, you know, they, they were, I'm going to say typical travellers, but they were, they were stereotypical travellers. They were, they were decent guys. They'd, they'd been out thieving stuff. They'd gone to prison, but they just wanted to get on and get out. So whenever there was anything going on, they would either give me information that something was going on or I'd go to them and say, this this happened. So there was a specific incident. I remember we'd, we'd smelt hooch on the wing one day. Um, so prison prison brew, they'd make it their own alcohol and it stunk. You could smell it a mile off. Um, they would make it with oranges and fermented bread and it would just, it would smell like yeast. And I remember smelling it. I searched everywhere. I knew it was in someone's cell. You can't search every cell. So I went to the two survey workers and they were both gym buffs. Uh, and I said... There's hooch on this wing. And again, I'm not going to try and butcher the Irish accent. I said, no, no governor. No governor does not. I said, there is hooch on this wing and I want it. And if I don't have it by lunchtime, there's no gym this afternoon. You can't do that. I said, well, I won't have to if someone brings me the hooch. And within an hour, this little kid had come to the, the office, <laughs> black eye and a bucket of hooch. <laughs> I mean, we don't even know. Probably won't even need hooch. He just found the weakest person. Give him a slap. Take that. Take that up there. And that was it. We, we'd got it in so that we could have gym. What was the biggest problems with the gangs? Imagine the drugs. Well, no, not really. I suppose it was vying for power. It's not all about drugs. It's about power, about mobile phones, still running your empire from, from in the jail. You know, that, that's what, that's what they were, that's what they were vying for. Who's, who's running this? Who's doing that? Who's, so yes, there was drugs, but it wasn't, it wasn't like you see in the movies. It wasn't like everyone's taking heroin. Everyone, we was enabling it. We was enabling it because all you had to do was go to the med, meds hatch with severe pain and they're, they're doling out pregabalins, and gabapentins and tramadols and zopoclone and just, just 
just meds after meds. And that was where the problem was with the meds they were giving out, Subatex. So for the purposes of this interview, then, we're going to say white, brown, and green for the main drugs. Oh, can't we say the actual drugs? Yeah, it's all right. I'm going to mute it. Oh, what apologies. Well, you said it. Don't worry about it. Um, so white, brown, and green. So when they're getting these packages in, then, of those substances, um, how do you deal with all that? Is it visitation? Have you got corrupt staff members bringing it in? Is it getting thrown over the fence? So with with the illegal substances they're bringing yeah. in, then they're bringing it in through visits, mm. like with visitors. I've seen it. I've seen a guy full on snog his mum, like tongs <sighs> with his mum, um, to pass drugs from her to him. I've seen a mum go, and because we, when you found out, you would then go watch back on the cameras so you could get the evidence. I've seen a mum go down her pants into her private parts, take the thing out, pass it to her son, and her son then take it and swallow it. So there's that. There is corrupt staff. There, there is corrupt staff. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's grim, isn't it? <laughs> you said you wanted the. You said you wanted the juiciest things, right? Like this is the best stuff that people um, want to hear. Original, <laughs> hard hitting um, content. Yeah. So, so th- there is that. There's bringing it in in visits, but it got really hard for them to bring it in visits because you're searching people as they're coming in. You're getting intel. You've got drug dogs. It's really hard to. It's not as easy as it used to be. Um, then you've got the packages coming over um, and you would do the night staff would be doing patrols and you would find packages. I remember a, a, a number one governor said so this was hilarious. They, this this package had come over and it had got the con's name on it. <laughs> it was for and what, and, and what wing he was on, right? Whoa. Yeah, we'll call him uh, the Terrible. I'm going to call him the Terrible because of what his name was. So we'll call him the Terrible. And uh, this package had come over. We, we'd found it on the patrol in the morning. I hadn't, but I remember the screw that did. Found the, the package. And it was just before Christmas. It was about a week before Christmas. And this package was loaded. There was SIM cards and phones. And there was there was brown and there was white and there was green. There was everything in there. Everything. And the number one governor put on a Santa costume with like the hat and everything. And laid it all out on his desk. So it was all like lined up. And then put, ho, 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 no effing Christmas for you. Right? And then took a picture. And then they printed it off and they put it on this con's door for when he come back. So yeah, they, they got everything. And, and then two hours later, he's in the set on own protection. Because he's promised all that to someone. Oh, he owed a lot of people. He's owed a lot of people. Because there's a lot of money in it. £500, if I, as a screw... I had more offers. I could have been loaded. I could have been loaded. And it would start off as a joke. Oh, I don't suppose you'd bring us a phone in, would you, Gov? No. £500 straight into your bank, you know? No, I won't. But you, I could have done. £500 a time. We interviewed an ex-officer, Lee, who was bringing up the free packages a day for £500 each. Yeah, £500 each. And yeah. his starting salary was 18 k but he got busted two years later. But it just keeps flowing, doesn't it? Because there's so much money in it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't, I don't know the story. I haven't seen that. But what do you know? What happened to him? Did he go to prison for that? Oh yeah. Right. So I'll yeah. tell you this: we had, we had a screw who got caught. I don't want to say too much about this, but I'm going to tell the story. But I'm going to keep it as a, a screw got caught, a female screw, and how? Um, so there had been a bit of intel passed around. Um, and she got sloppy. So what happened is she had been recruited at a young age as a gang to join the prison service. Oh. Yeah. So she was in and she was bringing stuff in, loads of stuff in. But what happened was this big player who was on one of the wings, it was his girlfriend. 
and he was in the SAG and she was doing shifts in the SAG at night and then going to see him in his cell. But as always, there's no honor among thieves. Some con had found out and to, to get himself out of the trouble one day, he said, well, this, 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 and this. So then the intel starts. So then you start looking at things, but nothing happened to her because I don't know when this thing with this Lee happened, but to investigate an officer and to prosecute them, it costs millions. So it's easier to go, well, maybe you ought to try and resign. And we had women that were marched to the gate for having inappropriate relationships. Not going to investigate. You're best off resigning or you're going to get sacked. Then they resign. Then they don't have to do the investigation. And I've seen that probably five times in my career with people either bringing stuff in. There was a DHL worker, like the canteen guy that was bringing in alcohol and he got marched to the gate and asked to leave. There was a woman that was having, a civilian woman that was having an affair with a, a con down in the same place, DHL. She was asked to leave. And then there was a female um, screw as well that was having an indecent relationship with a prisoner. And she was asked to leave. None of them got prosecuted. So you're saying that the gangs now are getting people recruited, recruited. specifically just to bring it in. They were on that occasion. I know there was intel about another screw that we never... I put this intel in myself. Someone had come to me and said this officer is bringing in steroids for a gym screw uh, for a gym con um and he's bringing him in they took down his pants he's meeting him in the gym we got all we'd got all the intel and we put it in um and they pulled this screw one day on the way in on a routine searched him and didn't find anything and then so there was no further action after that but what i was told then was he hadn't been recruited he had just been another one they'd say young lad only a young lad bring it in 500 pound the first time but then the next time, 50 quid. It was 500 last time. Wow, we've got evidence that you brought it in. So if you don't bring it in, we're going to grass you up. And that's that's what ends up happening. So it might be worth it to some. To me, it wasn't. I had a young family. I wasn't in there for that. I'm not corrupt. I would never have even been tempted. But for some... Yeah, because they, tr- they try to get you to bring in something lightweight. And then they say, now you've done that you've got to bring this in, otherwise we're going to tell them you've brought that in. Yeah, yeah. And it goes up, 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 up. Yeah, and before you know it, you're bringing in stuff. You, you're putting yourself at being at risk of it going to prison for nine years for nothing. Every day. Yeah, Vanessa Frick, the prison governor we interviewed, she talked about only a, you know, a percent of the packages get detected. Yeah. And their percent was so high, the amount that was getting in it was just astronomical. So... To be fair, when I was in, packages and things coming in was getting really hard. That's why they started dealing the stuff they were getting from the meds hatch, Uh. the prescription drugs, the stuff that they were getting given. And it was easy. And we had a drug treatment wing. And on the drug treatment wing, they would have the green liquid you take for um for addiction or you'd have tablets that you take for addiction. The tablets are a blocker. They stop the, the, the substances working. But what they were doing was they would get themselves on a script. Oh, I'm addicted, I'm addicted. Get themselves on a script. And then they would put Vaseline in their mouth, put the tablets in the Vaseline. Ah, uh-huh. show your mouth. Yeah, can't see it. Take the tablets out and then sell the tablets to somebody else because they were blockers. But if you cut it up and snorted it, it gave you a high. So that's what they were doing. So we got wind of this because we, we caught a guy. Someone said this prisoner's got, he's dealing these tablets. We know where he's got it. It's all sewn into his seams. He unpicks his seams. He sews his seams back up 
And that's where he hides his tablets. So when you search him and you get him to strip and you check the pockets and stuff, you don't tend to check seams. So, so we did that and we found, uh, I think it was 23 or so of these subtext, ta- uh, sorry, the, the white tablets on him. Um, and so, so after that, they went, right, what we're going to do is we're going to, instead of giving them tablets now, we've, we've got this new ingenious idea. It's all going to be powder form. So it's just going to be powder, lift your tongue, put it under your tongue, it dissolves. And then, so you can't, you, you can't deal, the, you t- can't deal the tablets. We're not realizing quite how ingenuitive cons can be. What they were doing was they were doing that. They were keeping the saliva as much as they could in their mouth. Then they'd regurgitate it into a bowl, so a plastic food bowl, smear it round the edges so it was really thin, put it on the radiator until it dried, then scrape it off so it was a powder, and then sell it, and then someone would then go and snort that. So you were snorting, they were snorting somebody's regurgitated phlegmy drugs. Wow. That's the desperation. That's the level. Also shows, like you said, though, the uh, ingenuity of people and the wasted talent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can yeah. tell you a great story about that. Please so, do. So we, we was doing, I was doing nights. Nights come around every so many weeks. Um, and I was patrolling around the, you patrol around the outside of the prison, checking everything. And I walked past, again, this was on K-Wing. Um, I walked past, I seen this con stood in his window on a, on a mobile phone, just as, as bold as anything. So back in the, the next day, I put a, a, what's called an SIR in secure information report, seen this. My mate, who, uh, Officer P, he was, he was like that human phone detector all over it. And he rang me at home and he went, do you definitely see that phone? I was like, yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. He said, right, we're going to spin him. Yeah, do it. So they went in the next morning, busted his door open, spun his cell. Connor's just laid on his bed. Yeah, that's fine. Spun him, couldn't find it. Sure, sure it was there. Yeah, yeah. Next night, patrolled again, saw him again, stood in his window on his mobile phone. Right, must have it plugged. So plug in. Okay, I'll explain plug in. Plug in is where you hide something in your bottom, um, essentially. So it's called keystering in America. Oh, keystering. Yeah, plug yeah. in. Keyster. So yeah, plug in. Must must have it plugged. So we had what was called a boss chair. A boss chair was like a metal detector that you sat on. It could detect if you had anything. So the next day, I'm at home. Then, right, we're going to boss chair him. Okay, boss chaired him. Nothing. Didn't go, no, nothing went off. This went on for ages. I finished my nights. They were going and spinning him regularly. Never find it. Another thing cons would do to get rid of their phones would be swing them out the windows to the next cell. But K-Wing, you couldn't because they were closed, enclosed in. He could, there was no way he could have got the phone out of the cell. And they said, he must be winding you up. He must be on a, a joke. He must be standing in his window pretending he's on a phone, holding a can of beans or something. <laughs> so this, this went on for weeks and weeks. And I, I said one morning, I said to him, I said, come on, we'll go down there. I said, we'll come in early. We'll, we'll take him by surprise because he's not expecting us to be there at like 5 a.m. We'll bust his door open. We'll spin his cell. So we did. We went in. We bust his door open. He's like, he's asleep. He jumps in. Right, we've got you now. So we, we searched him. We checked his cell, pillars, everything. Ripped that cell to bits. Nothing. And, and my mate, Mr. Uh, colleague, Mr. Pills, oh, I'm not having this. So this con has got all these matchstick models, like, because they'd make matchstick models as time passed. Um, like the um, Eiffel Tower and the the um, Mona Lisa, these, not the Mona Lisa. What's the Taj Mahal? A, a, a motorbike. Someone had made a motorbike with a shotgun in the back. You know, like um, Terminator's motorcycle. And he went like that, and he just smacked all these all these things to smash them. And as he did, this box come flying off, smashed on the wall. Phone dropped out. So this box was a solid cube 
And it was like an ornamental thing. And when you picked it up, when we'd searched this cell, we'd picked it up. It's solid. You couldn't do anything with it. There was no drawers. There was nothing on it. When you shook it, there was nothing in it. What he was doing was every night, he was taking it to pieces, using the phone, putting it back in, like tightly packed in, gluing it back together like two hours before unlock. So it was solid. And and, and that's that's it. It was there. Wow. And we were just looking at it going... Because you wouldn't think, as a screw, the first thing is not to think, let's smash that box. If it's solid, you, it's solid. <laughs> you just don't think that that's how their mind would work. Any other examples of crafty ways of doing things? So we had a doctor. I don't think he's high profile, but it was weird. He was inside for like stealing 70 million off the NHS. He was getting, what? yeah, he was getting B-catted. Um, and I can't find any, I can't find any documentation about it. I remember talking to my wife about it. My wife's NHS. I remember talking to my wife about it and saying, well, she's like, I never heard of that. And then when I went and you look for, it, you can't find it, but it's true. He was there. I can remember his, I remember his name, what he looked like. And he was getting B-catted and we was going through all his belongings um searching it before all all he he went off and and i picked up this tin of soup campbell's um cream of mushroom tin soup gave it a shake could hear the soup inside put it down and he went i'll tell you what mr h seeing i like you i'll give you that one and i was like oh no i don't i don't want your soup you take it with you he went that's not soup i went well what is it then he went have a look at it so i picked up the tin i'm looking at it I'm like, it's soup shaking it. I said, I said, you're having me on, it's soup. He went, it's a sealed container with a phone in it. And I went, no, it's not. He went, pass it here. I passed it over and he went like that. He got it like, and he squeezed like, bump. And he unpopped the lid, took the lid off. And it's an actual tin of Campbell's <laughs> soup. You would never tell, purposefully made. And it had got um, a false inside. So it got liquid. You know, like them cups you get that when you tip them up, it looks like they've got liquid round. Yeah. So it got liquid inside it. So when you shook it, perfectly weighted, but in the middle, there was just big enough to sit a little small mobile phone. And he'd had, he said, I've had that since I was, uh, I think it was Brixton he was in when he first got arrested. He said, I've had that since I was in there and a screw brought it in for me. He said, and I've been to five jails since that and nobody's ever found it. So did he get some kind of disciplinary action yeah, for that? He was just, it, it was just a, let's just stick it in in evidence. And he was going, it was as he was leaving the jail, did a lot of paperwork, a lot of discipline, just off you go. Next wow. jail, we've, got, we've now got a, another phone to our tally. Wow. I know, yeah. So what about high profile prisoners or murderers? So we did, there was loads of murderers. Um, there was a lifer wing, 60, 60 people on there. Nobody high profile. You didn't really get high profile in Cat C. I wish I could tell you the story about Mark Morrison, the singer. Um, but I can't, but by all accounts, he, when he did time, he was at Stockholm, but that was for my time. What had he done? I don't know. I, I, I've never actually seen any, I mean, it might have just been an urban legend that other screws told us, but they used to say he was on, he was on, uh, H wing and he paid all the other cons to let him win a ping pong tournament. So I didn't even know he'd been to prison, if I'm honest. And I might be talking out of turn, Mark Morrison. Sorry if you haven't <laughs> been to prison, but that's what the screws used to tell us. Uh-huh. Yeah, they'd got him. And there wasn't really, he didn't really get high profile. A lot of murderers. So did you know any of the murderers' backstories? Um, I knew the crimes they'd committed. Yeah, yeah, I knew the crimes they committed. I knew a, we had a really, we had a decent con. Um, he was our cleaner on, um, in the seg. He was the seg cleaner. Now, people talk about bringing back the death sentence. Um, and there's advocates for it, there's arguments for and against, and they talk about murder. And I've, 
before I went into prison service, I was all for it. You know, you, you murder someone or you do this and you deserve it. But when you work with people like that, you start to realize what life is and how valuable life is. And, and this isn't taking anything away from this guy's crimes, but he murdered his girlfriend quite horrifically. Um, and it was, he was a normal guy. He had got a job. He got a business. He was really well-spoken, a really nice bloke. Like if you had met him, you would have never have known that he'd ever done anything wrong. Crime of passion. Uh, drug, drug induced. Him and his girlfriend would go out and take loads of drugs, white powder. Um, and he stabbed her, I think 37 times. Because he was just too high. Cause he, so the, the story wasn't, he used to talk about it. He says, I remember doing it. He said, I remember doing it. I didn't want to. I loved her. I didn't want to, but I remember doing it. I don't know why I did, but I did. I did it. Just because he was too high, I thought he should cheat on him yeah, or something. Yeah, like, and he said he doesn't know. He doesn't know why he did it. I remember being so angry and going and getting a knife and killing him. He remembers it. <sighs> and, but he was a really nice guy. And you think... Maybe it was paranoia. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, that, and you think, well, where, where do you draw the line when you talk, start talking about bringing back capital punishment? Like, because... When you're on nights, when you work nights, you deal with all the new inductions coming in. And that means the paperwork. And you got someone like him. He's murdered someone. It's not good. Can't go around murdering people. <laughs> it's not right. I'm not justifying it. He's committed that crime. This was, he's done 14, 15 years in prison. He's probably going to get released and live a normal life and be a normal bloke. People coming in through visits into a Catsy jail, some of them are mid-20s and they've got 400 previous convictions for violence, robberies, theft. It's always theft from elderly, theft from the disabled, theft from children. It's never theft from a, a, a bodybuilder in a gym. It's, I mean, it's never theft. It's always vulnerable people. And it's vulnerable people's lives they're ruining. What I've found from my research, because I've written a series of books about the war on drugs, the people who use the brown from Afghanistan... They cause mayhem in terms of acquisitive crime, especially preying on vulnerable people, old ladies robbing their houses and shoplifting, burglaries, car theft. So I imagine that you see a lot of those people end up in the prison system. Part of my issue with the prison service is that it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I'm not saying I've got a formula to make it work, but these people you're talking about, they do that to feed the habit and then they come into a prison and then we stick them on a maintenance program and they sit on a drug, re- a drug rehabilitation wing for eight, nine, ten months of a two-year sentence because you only do half, you only spend half your time in prison. So if you get two years, you do 12 months. So they sit there and we feed them substances and then they get released and they're not getting them substances anymore and they go straight back onto the gear and then they go and steal and rob to to do it again, and it's just a revolving it's just a revolving door. But there's so much money made from those people because every prisoner's like sixty thousand pounds a year, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And and one of my and I don't think we really want to get into it too much, but one of my biggest issues is the money that that people like the pharmaceutical companies make. Um, let's keep people sick. Let's keep people ill. There's so much money in that. After the U.S. military, which is the number one consumer of pharmaceuticals yeah, in America. Yeah, yeah prison system is the second biggest yeah yeah it's just it's massive rife. contracts yeah and and that's why they I, I would say in my opinion that's why they just keep this revolving door and it's the same with so my my thing is fitness health and fitness the fitness hutch 
we are pushing people to be ill. We are pushing um, sweets, chocolates, crisps, fast food. Let's keep people fat. Let's keep people inactive. Because when you do, you need medication to get better. Yeah. All right. So going back to the prison then, like when you're dealing with the murderers, were there some murderers that you were wary of versus others who were well-behaved? No, I was never really wary of any of the murderers. I mean, you're wary of everyone. You're wary of everyone all the time. But when you're on, when you're on, so it was B-Wing was the lifer wing. Um, It was calm. It was always, they they were well behaved because they knew what the consequences were. Most of them were coming up to the the time when they could get released. And so if you, as as a normal prisoner, if you do your, if you get two years and you get released after 12 months, you're on license for 12 months. If you commit a crime, during that time and you get breached or you don't go to one of your things, you get put back in prison and you finish your sentence. If you're a lifer, or this was how it was back then, I don't know if it still is now, if you was a lifer and you got released, you're on lifetime license. Mm. And if you commit one crime, 10 years. So they've got the incentive. They've got the incentive there to behave. It wasn't them that you're wary of. It's all the others that you're wary of watching your back all the time. Even the ones that you get on with even the ones that have given you intel because they've got they've got nothing to lose did anyone turn on you yeah oh yeah i was i was assaulted once um i like to think i was a good screw um there were screws that weren't good there were screws that would overstep the mark maybe they'd been in too long there was restraints that um probably could have been avoided but you can always justify a restraint with reasonable necessary proportionate i was in fear for my safety so this one, this one day was in the SAG and there's a guy, uh, just call him prisoner, <laughs> prisoner. I can't think of a name. I, the, the problem was this went to court. So I've got his name etched on my brain. I don't want to split it by accident. No. So we'll just call him prisoner. And he was, he had mental health issues. He would just stand staring. I, I gone out and he was a, he was a big black guy. And he was being adjudicated. I can't remember what the adjudication was for, if I'm honest, but it was, I'd been in the block a long time. I was leading the adjudication. I walked him into the adjudication room, said, stand behind the chair and give your name and number to the governor. And he just stood still, didn't move. I said, stand behind the chair, give your name and number to the governor. And he just turned around, looked at me and went, bosh, <laughs> just smack me clean in the face. Ooh. And you can see it on camera, bosh. And I take two steps back and then I kind of do the Scooby-Doo thing. Like I ran on the spot and then ran in to go and restrain him. And the table in the adjudication room went flying because the governor was a big guy. He launched the table. The The other screw that was in there with me, but they were all big guys. Everyone was a big guy. He was a big guy. He just, so we jumped on him and restrained him. I've got blood pressing out my nose. And yeah, and then, so they restrained him. And I, I had to go uh, x-rays and stuff. Uh, but it wasn't too bad, actually. Nothing was broken. They thought, initially, they thought he broke my nose on my cheekbone, but it was just um, severely bruised. But that was it. Other than that, I was never potted. I was never assaulted. I've been in probably one other situation where I thought, I'm in the pooper here. What was that? Um, so on the old wings, the smaller wings, the spurs... Uh, the the corridors that the cells are on, you go down the bottom of them and there's no way out. Once you're at the bottom, you've got to go back up. You know, like on, um, is it, was it in Porridge where they, they went down and you couldn't, so you couldn't get out at the bottom. And I remember I was on a wing and a con had come on the wing that shouldn't have been on the wing. And I knew who he was. I knew he shouldn't have been on the wing. Somebody let him on, like a new screw had let him on because he just said it was his wing. Knocked on the door, opened it, just walked on. So I followed him down. I saw him come past the office. I followed him down to the bottom. 
Uh, and I said, um, can you give me your name and number, please? And he told me to F off, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and I'm stood on the wing. And I said, well, I know your name. Um, he was a football hooligan. I says, I know your name. I know your heart. I know this isn't your wing. And he's like, no, no, that's not me. That's not me. I said, yeah, that's you. That's definitely you. So you need to leave. And what are you going to do if I don't? I said, well, if you don't, then I'm going to escort you off. He went, yeah, but you won't be able to. I'm thinking, I won't be able to. Like, <laughs> not my own because you're a lump. And like at this point, I wasn't into fighting one-on-one. I liked three-on-one. It was much fairer. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm still there going, okay. I said, that's fine, but I'm going to go. I'm going to go and I'm going to fetch some people and then we're going to come and we're going to remove you. And he went, how exactly are you going to do that? And I went, oh, what do you mean? He went, look behind you. And I turn around and I've obviously walked down a corridor with 10 cells and every single con had come out and there was four or five cons stood between me and the only exit. And he said, all these cons know who I am. As if to say, you ain't getting past. And I was like, okay. He went, so what are you going to do now then, big man? Like that. Didn't have a radio. So radio was staff assistance. I hadn't picked a radio up this morning. Not everyone got a radio. So I'm stood there. And I'm going to be honest, I was bricking it at this point. I thought, I am, I'm in this year. Um, and then it dawned on me, there's an alarm bell just next to me on the wall. And I just went, I'm going to do this. Bang, tap the alarm bell. Oh, and he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then obviously I couldn't have a radio, but then everyone else in the jail would have got um, alarm bell, spur two, uh, it was E-wing, spur, alarm bell, spur two, E-wing. Um, so I'm stood there and he went oh you think you're a big man you need your friends do you and I'm thinking I hope they get here before he lumps me because <laughs> <laughs> I thought it's going to take them a good couple of minutes to get down here and and like but at that point all the other cons dispersed and I started to I, I'm like backing away from him and I'm not going to go too quick because I don't want to think I'm running but I started to back and as I did these these screws come on and uh, then he just switched he went don't know what he's done that for I said, he's, he's not supposed to be here. I've asked him to leave. And, yeah, and I told him I'd leave and he just hit that bell for no reason. And, <laughs> and, but obviously your colleagues know that you wouldn't do that. And But I was like, but then I, I, I didn't get filled in, but I got gripped by the other seg screws. One of them got hold of me and said, if you ever do that again. And I was like, what? I thought he was going to say, put myself in a situation where I'm going to get hurt. He went, hit an alarm bell to take the pussy way out. He said, you should have restrained him. And I was like, no. wow. Because that's what it was. You, you, couldn't, you, couldn't be, you couldn't be a weakling. You couldn't be sick. You could never go sick. If you were sick, you came into work. If you were hurt, you came into work. No matter what, you came in. There was no um, mental illness. You couldn't suffer from depression or anxiety. You just get beaten up. And that was the other screws because they were big. Ooh, they don't, we're men. Can't eat, what do you mean you can't eat 15 sausages? Real men can eat 15. That, and it was, it was that kind of thing. What was your scariest moment throughout the whole career in the prison? Oh man, scariest moment. Okay, so let, I, th- I think it's got to be the, the riot, the, well, the indiscipline. I think that was, that was a pretty scary moment because, I mean, as I'm getting into the flow of talking, I think about it and you think about when you get down there, there is people everywhere. There's two people fighting over there. There's someone with a pool cue over there. You're stood in the middle of the wing. You've got people up above you that could have hot water thrown down on you. And I, I know that we were minutes away from that being a riot. And when there was a riot, and this was after I left the prison, when there was a riot at HMP Stockton, it was K wing that they lost. That was the wing because everybody's, everybody's off their heads. 
everyone's on the white stuff, the brown stuff, the, the green stuff. There's no, and I remember being down there thinking, this is, this is bad. This is bad. So the one that you dodged, how bad did that one get? We, what, the... You said there was one after you left. Oh, that they trashed the wing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they, they trashed the wing. It, it went, they, I don't know the full extent, but I was talking to one of my friends who's still in, and he said they lost, they lost the wing. It's, it's trashed. There's no one in it. They've trashed it to the point mm. it's gone. Mm. And, you know, that's, that's what can happen. When they, when they, Ashwell, when the one next door righted, that was the end of the jail. Ashwell never opened again. They got to the point where they they trashed an entire jail, the whole prison. So in the riot that you were in then, you said threats can come at you from any direction. How, like, does your awareness change? Threats can come at you in any direction all the time, all the time. And you're, you, certain things become instinctive when you're a prison officer. Your keys are always a risk. Because if you lose your keys, someone gets your keys and then get out. Like you've always got to have them somewhere. You're, you go, every door you go through, it's habit to open it, go through it, lock it. And what's called prove it, give it a shake. That becomes second nature just to do that. You don't think, oh, I need to prove that door. One thing that becomes second nature is when you're on them landings that have got like the old style Victorian, like what you're seeing, like bad girls and that, where there's people up above and they can they can throw things down. It becomes instinctive to walk under the landing above you. You don't walk down the middle because if you walk down the middle, you're leaving yourself open to things being lobbed at you. So you are always thinking about your surroundings. One of the real, I won't say scary things, but one of the biggest things you've got to consider is soon as the role is done as soon as unlock is called you go unlock every prisoner they're all going to work they're all going all over the place so all the wings doors open and there is cons everywhere and hmp stock at one point had a thousand prisoners and probably three quarters of them are on the corridors so if you're walking down that corridor on your own you are just surrounded by prisoners and that in itself is pretty it's pretty hairy <laughs> i'll be honest did you have a, f- a sense that your keys were getting targeted? Never. Never thought that in my whole time. And I don't think prisoners would be stupid enough. That's, I mean, you keep them in a pouch on your side. There's no, but they say, you know, if you're holding them, you, you hide them because they, you know, prisoners would see your keys. Some of them are savvy. They're clever. They can, they could see your key, draw your key from memory. Wow. Yeah. They, so hide your keys. Don't let anyone see them. Never compromised. Did you ever sense you were getting played in any other ways? Oh, all the time. You get, you what were the main ones? Um, the, uh, I would say the biggest one. I did a, a lot of time working in the mandatory drug testing unit. Um, I was a. You do the course to become a drug tester. Um, so you might come in. Your job might be the seg, but you might come in and look at the rotor and they'll say you're rotor to drug test today. Um, and the things that cons will do to get out of a drug test to <laughs> to not fail a drug test and they're all the time trying to play you and i remember this one this one situation we'd we'd search this guy and i was still still a rookie and you, before you do a drug test you search them top half bottom half gotta make sure they've got nothing strapped because they will strap like they'll get um fingers of gloves and fill them with someone else's pee and then when they go to pee they'll just use the glove so you've got to try and find them um so you search them and i remember searching this con and 
It's, it's not the prettiest thing to do, but this is what you have to do. You never have somebody completely naked. There was a, do you know, there was a documentary or a, a TV program a few years ago where it depicted screws strip searching cons naked. You don't naked strip does search. Does in America. Does it really? Yeah, they even had the finger wave in America. God. But that got ruled unconstitutional whereby they put on the rubber gloves and yeah, the yeah. finger went in. There's none of that. The, the, in a, in a UK prison, it's top half off. Search the top half, arms up, spin round, top half back on, bottom half off, but then they lift up and turn round. There's no bending over. But if you if you suspect they've got something plugged, you can get them to face you but squat down. Because if you're in a full squat position, it's really hard to clench something. It, they they tend and I've seen the stuff pop out and they do that. So this come, we've got him down the MDT. We had searched his top half, back on, bottom half off. Spin around, do a full three seat. You turn around. He's got, you know, steridant tablets for, for false teeth. He's got one of them tubes, <laughs> like a steridant tablet tubes between his bum cheeks, like not plugged, just clenching it. And I saw it when it's around. <laughs> and he went to put your bottoms on. I went, uh, don't get dressed yet. I need that, what you've got there. He went, I ain't got anything. I said, you have, I've just, I've just seen it. <laughs> no. I said, turn around again. He went, no, I've turned around once. I'm not doing it again. I don't have to. Now at that point, <laughs> at that point within the prison service, I am well within my legal rights to restrain that prisoner because he is failing failing to comply. So I can restrain him and search him under restraint. However, I was a rookie, had never put hands on myself, like instigated. And I think in my whole career, I instigated two restraints. Um, I'd never instigated a restraint, didn't really want to. I was with another young officer. So I made a mistake. I put him back in a cell, put him back in the holding cell and went and called and said, We've got this guy down here. He's refusing this. We think he's got something. Well, we know he has. I've seen it. Can we get an officer down here? They come down, went, searched him again. Gone. Went and looked out the window of the cell. It's outside. Couldn't prove. And and to this day, I think, that putting him back in that cell was a huge mistake. Like, I should have just, I could have just restrained him. And then, so when people say to me, but, oh, you shouldn't restrain all the time. I think there was, there was times when we, we should have done and perhaps didn't. Do you think he had substances in that package then? No, he would have had urine. Oh, fake urine. He would have had urine. Someone else's urine that was yeah, clean. Yeah, he would have had someone else's urine That's that was clean. It, yeah. And so I tell you this. So um, when in the prison service, when you break rules, they have to be really careful how they word the charge that they give. So um, unauthorized article, right? So it used to be an unauthorized article. If I got him and adjudicated and said he was in possession of an authorised article, the parasite or the solicitor that would come in would say, where did he get it from? Where did he get what from? The steroid tablet tube. Well, he bought it on canteen. It's not unauthorised then. You sold him it. It's not an authorised article. So they changed the wording to has in his possession an article that isn't being used for what it is intended use. So we'd... we'd when you adjudicate within within the prison, it's a governor. But when it's a more serious charge, failure, drug test, serious assault, something like that, a judge comes in. So once a month, a judge comes in and they can get the added days to their sentence. Up to, I think it's up to 28 days per charge. So we've got this con and he was in for, has in possession an article, not what it was tended. What it was, was because it was an MDT, he had got a toothpaste tube that was filled with wheat. So it was, wasn't being toothpaste tubes, wasn't you being used for toothpaste? So we sat there and these, these judges were brilliant. Judges hated the cons. And we were sat there on this, um, this adjudication and the judge read it out and the, uh, 
the solicitor says, how do you know that what's in that tube isn't toothpaste? The judge sat and looked at him. He had a long day of solicitors trying to get cons off these like charges that they were obviously guilty for. And the judge went, you know what? He says, I've had enough of this. And he got the evidence bag, he ripped it open, and he squirted the pee out onto the table in front of the solicitor and went, would you brush your teeth with that? <laughs> <laughs> and the solicitor was like, he just, he just didn't know what to say. But then, them adjudication days, they were just... They were just like that. Solicitors coming in, trying to get people off with charges that they, they were guilty for. It was, um, so an, another one, we had uh, a con who was refusing to leave the segregation unit. Um, and that was a charge in itself. Refusing to leave the second, go back to general population. And he got three charges of this. And a judge come in and he'd been saying to us, he was a, um, he was a brummie. He was in for stealing a mobile phone of a 14-year-old girl. That was his... He'd beat her up and stole her phone. Yeah, big man. And he would get a big man ting in it. That's what he said. I'm a big man ting. Big man on road. It's like, you're not. You're a loser. You're a nobody. And so he wouldn't go on the wing because he was going to get killed. They were going (laughs) to... They were going to beat him up. So... And he kept saying, I'll get off with it. My dad's solicitor and he's going to send one of his paralegals and I'm going to get away with this. And he's always bigging himself up. And we went into this adjudication room. And I wish I could do this standing up, but I can't. So he walks in and he sits down and I sit behind him. I've I've got my foot on the chair. So I'm... I'm... He's sat here. I'm sat to his right. My colleague is sat to his left with the door behind him. And his solicitor comes in and... Could barely even speak a word of English. He was a little um, Asian paralegal. Clearly didn't have a clue. Judge read out all the all the adjudication. Um, and he went, solicitor, do you want to say anything? No, no, no. And his con looked at him. He didn't say no. Like, get, right, guilty. 72 added days. So he did, well, whatever, 28 times three is. I think it might be 72. So 28, three lots of 28. So this con. So I moved my foot off his chair so he could stand up. He stood up. Pointed to his solicitor, he's probably went, you're sacked. And as he did, my colleague opened the door to the adjudication room. He turned round to walk out, bosh, straight into the door, knocked himself out cold. Worst worst day for his adjudication ever. So as you brought up the subject of P-tests, in America, I don't know if they do it like this in, in the UK, but there's a staff member watching you get your man part out and urine, yeah. urinate in the thing. So he's he's okay. gazing at your man part wow. as this. But the pressure of trying to pee yeah, yeah. when a, a, a staff member is gazing, they call it Peter gazing in America, is Peter gazing on your man part. A lot of people can't pee under that pressure, yeah, yeah. but that's an automatic dirty if you can't pee, so you get the ticket, yeah, and yeah, which same. is even more pressure. Yeah, how does it work in the UK? Same, so you don't look directly at them. That's how they can get away with using like something else. You you observe, you stand near, but you don't actually look at them. So, so you don't look directly at them. You, Were you looking? You can't. Well, they've got their back to you. Oh, they've got the other back to you. Yeah. So in America, you're peeing, and he's stood there checking you directly out. Oh, no, no, it's not. I don't know what it's like now, but this would yeah. be... They go, there's a mirror up on a wall in the corner and yeah. there's like a little 
um, there's a urinal, so they're actually they can actually pee in a urinal if they've got loads to come. Yeah. So it's just like being in a in a public toilet, yeah. and they're stood at a urinal, and then they hold the part. The mirror can kind of see if they're fiddling with anything, but doesn't actually see their parts. Yeah. But yeah, it's the same. But the same thing. Uh, what they call it? Um, shy something shy i can't remember what the term was now but yeah that's that's what it would be and if they if they couldn't go that was a fail because they could have now legally according to the um world health health organization there's a certain amount of fluid you can drink in a certain amount of time if you drink it in that amount of time and still can't go then you're refusing to go because there's no way you would drink that much and not be able to go yeah if the guard was nice he'd say go and drink a load of stuff and, and we'll call you in like in an hour yeah, or two yeah. hours something like that the trouble is we're going drinking loads of stuff it waters it down and it, it, mm. then it doesn't come back as a fail it comes back as a dilute right and then that's a different charge than a dilute you can't charge someone for having dilute urine because they might be someone that goes to the drink and drink. if I went and did a pee test now I'd be dilute because yeah. I drink loads and this is why I'm told that people converted in prison from the green to the brown because the green stays in your urine for a month, but the brown doesn't. And then other substances, such as spice, um, they, it took a, um, them a long time to catch up with that in the urine completely. So that was encouraged. So spice and psycho, um, psychoactive substances weren't a thing when, when I was in. They, really? They, 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 that really started later on um but if we're talking about green are we talking about the herbal green that you roll up yeah that's exactly why that's exactly why they go from green to brown because the amount of time it stays in your system yeah 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 it's it's um and it's it's tragic really so by by putting in drug tests you're actually converting people to class a substance yeah yeah isn't it yeah yeah so what about educational resources in the uk system did they have programs and stuff really good programs really good programs um within our jail you could do so uh, vt so it's vocational training so they had vt catering so you could learn to be a chef they had vt um uh tires and exhaust so you could learn to work in like quick fit um they had um like computer courses english math i mean what you can achieve in the prison service to better yourself is phenomenal and so it should be because they want them to be you know model citizens when they get out having because in america there's nothing it's just drug and gang infested mayhem yeah yeah but they know when they come back sixty thousand dollars hey why why educate them and they get jobs I think the problem with the prison service in the UK, and again, I did touch on this earlier, is it's it's ineffective. And they try and model it sometimes on the American models. And I think Ricky would probably have to tell you more about IPP than I can. But I'm pretty sure that the IPP system was something they trialed in America and they brought it to the UK, but mm. didn't run it the same. And it was a terrible system. But you think you've got a con who on the outside is homeless or lives in squalor, is earning benefits, doesn't have a job, has no street cred, got nothing. You come to prison, you get free clothes, free shoes, free food, free meds, free gym, free training, free TV. Like, you, you're warm, you're safe. What, what's, what's better? It's like that guy in Shawshank, isn't it? Institutionalised. Yeah, institutionalised. Yeah, yeah. come back. They're, all their friends are there. Like, made, they, they all know each other. Made a name for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And and how I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how to prevent crime. I don't think that we are tough enough. I think we've got to the point where we're we not don't... tough enough on the adults who harm kids and the adults who force themselves on women, especially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, ab- absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's 
that's something that, and I I believe in my opinion that's because that's the the crime of choice of the more famous people. Oh indeed it's prevalent isn't it in the yeah. elites. So one of the classic, one of the talking points we've got here is the problem with governors. <laughs> so governors are where I mean I know you've had a governor on and not all governors were like this so I've had loads of problems with governors. Um and one of my biggest issues is people who have double standards and I can openly tell you I knew of a governor who manufactured a restraint against a prisoner because he wanted him to be punished for spitting at a female member of staff, which is disgusting. Um, and cons kind of knew if they overstepped the line that at some point a restraint would happen. But for a governor to ring up a segregation unit and say, I'm going to be adjudicating this morning. During the adjudications, can you make sure that the prisoner in this cell becomes refractory so we can restrain him because I want to come and be involved in the restraint because he spat in someone's face who this governor was having an affair with. Now, he spat in someone's face that the governor was having an affair with. Yeah. So the governor was a man yeah. having an affair with a female staff member. Yeah. Got it. Um, and then that, that restraint happened. Like I, I wasn't actually there, but I know the con. I, I knew who he was and why, why they had done it. And... You know, he's their own, whatever you want to do. But then don't be the governor that's then, when I go and restrain someone, comes to me and says, why have you done that restraint? Did you follow the book? Did you do this? Did you do that? And I'm sat there thinking, when you was a sprog, when you was a young screw at Leicester, the stories were you was bringing in phones and drugs. You know, that was that was the rumours. I don't know for definite that's what this governor was doing, but that's what everyone said. They know that this governor was doing that because there was a, there was a con that come in and said, God, you got him here. He was a... He was only a principal officer there and he was doing all sorts. And then he's manufacturing assaults. And then they're coming to us and going, what, why did you put hands on that prisoner? Why didn't you just shut the door? Why did you do this? Questioned all the time. And that was because towards the end of my career, I was earning £30,000 a year. That was I was at top band or 20, it might be 28. It was going on 30. I can't remember the exact amount. Um but they were recruiting new recruits at 15 and a half. So if they could get me sacked, if I could go, then they could replace me for half the price. So that's what they wanted. And we had a, we had a screw. I'm going to tell this story. We had a screw. I'm not going to say his name, but he had been in a long time and he wasn't, he was a good screw, but he had crossed the line more than once. He was misogynistic. He was rude. He was racist. He, he was everything that everybody would hate. Um, he, he did what he needed to do as a screw, but he wasn't, he wasn't a decent bloke. Governors hated him. There'd been loads of complaints about him and no one could ever prove anything. And they started a witch hunt to get him out. This governor did. New, fairly new governor, young, young female. Well, she wasn't even young. Um, female governor. And she come to me and she says, you worked loads of shifts with this officer, didn't you? I said, yeah, I've worked loads with him. She said, um, have you ever heard of any stories about things that he's, he does that he shouldn't do? And I was like, oh, I don't really know what, you, know what you mean, Governor. She went, well, we're putting a case together and we're looking for people to testify that he's done this and he's done that. And I went, yeah, 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 actually, it's it's disgusting some of the stuff he's done, Governor. And this, was, this wasn't even on the wing. By the way, I was at home at this point. I was off sick. So I'd had back surgery. Um, had nine weeks off after having surgery, and I got this was a telephone call. It says, um, would you testify under oath to this to these incidents? 
Cossack. Yeah, Cossack would. Yeah, yeah. So it's a witch hunt. They're just they're just looking for people. So knock at the door. Please turn up. Recording equipment. Sit down. Uh, okay, so we've got the list of incidents here. Um, on such and such a day, uh, Officer Thingy apparently assaulted a prisoner by punching him in the face. Um, can you tell me your your recollection of that story? <sighs> no, I don't recall that story, Officer. He went, what? He looked. At, you don't recall that? No, I don't recall that. Okay, so have you ever heard Officer such and such call an officer uh, an N-word? Nope, don't recall that one either. <laughs> I had a whole list of these things that they were trying to get him for, which he hadn't done, to be fair. Um, and then this governor ran me up afterwards and she went, you said that you was going to do... Th-. I said, oh, sorry, governor. I think I misunderstood what you meant. They sacked him. They sacked him anyway and then had to overturn it because it had been manufactured. <sighs> now, if they had just got him for what he had done wrong, but they couldn't, they couldn't prove it. And from my understanding, I don't know, this This happened after I left, but my understanding, they overturned it and then had to give him a massive payout. He was two years from full retirement when they tried to sack him, which would have meant a massive pension. And I think from what I was told, that not only did he get his massive pension, they had to pay him for the rest of his career as well wow. until he retired. Wow. And and that's that's what governors were like towards the end. And I... I know that when you spoke to Vanessa, no, the other guy would, uh, the guy with the beard. That oh, John Sutton. John Sutton. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know when you spoke to John, he spoke briefly about the POA. Now, the POA, I have a huge problem with, um, and they are in with the governors. They, they, they ran things for their own. In my opinion, they ran things for their own gains. Um, and it was always about everything they ever talked about was about pensions because they were all old school, all old sweats. All they gave a damn about was their pensions. They didn't care about working conditions. They didn't care about how many people were on the wing, long hours or anything like that. They cared about pensions. And I was working down on a wing I didn't want to be on. And it was about a mile and a half away from the gate. I think it's about a 15 minute walk from the wing to the gate. So every day that's half an hour extra you had to do because they said you have to be there. So I got to the point where I said, you know what, soon as my numbers are in, once I've counted my spur and I'm happy that my spur is correct, I'm heading to the gate. I don't care if A wing are correct or B wing are correct. I know my spur's correct so I can get to the gate for when the roll is correct, I can leave. Because they were saying, no, you have to wait for everybody to be correct before you can leave your wing. And I'm going, well, like it could be 10 minutes late in and I've got a 15 minute walk. So that's 25 minutes late off. I'm not prepared to do it. So I started, I started leaving and um, a the the duty governor, he actually was a PO, um, who was, he, I can't remember the call, the duty manager, was at the gate when I got there on one of the days. And he said, you can't, you what, what wing were you on, Elwin? You can't be a, you should say, oh, and I just I walked away from him. And he chased me out. He chased me out into the car park. And I said, just so you know, I'm a civilian right now. I'm out of the prison. I'm a civilian. Don't talk to me like I'm a piece of, go yourself so I got in my car I drove off come back in the next day they they demanded a meeting with me with the POA present no well no they demanded a meeting with me to discuss my behavior and the way that I'd spoke to this manager with the I wanted the POA present so I want my union next I'm paying for the union so I sat and I told them exactly what I thought of their rules of the way that they treated officers 
the way that they spoke to people. I had had a disciplinary against me because I had a, I had a mohawk. Mm-hmm. So I shaved. It was, it was more like a mullet than a mohawk. Mm-hmm. Um, it was when Chelsea won the Champions League. I'd shaved my hair and I dyed it blue and they hated it. And they, they accused me of being a thug. So I had to change. So I had a disciplinary against me for that. And there'd just been all this stuff where they were trying to either get me to quit or trying to get me to the point where I was going to, where I got sacked. Um, so I just bawled it all out in this meeting. I said, this is going on. That's going on. I've had enough of this. This governor said this to me that, and, and it all come out. And I, I left it at that. And I went back to the wing and this was in the morning. And in the afternoon, a, another screw come in and he said, you're an idiot. You are. And I said, what? And this is a screw that I knew well, like a friend. He says, you're going to ruin it for everyone moaning and complaining. And, and I said, what are you on about? He said, wish we could say names this POA member or this POA representative has just been telling everyone in the car park what you said in your meeting this morning and I said you what this is a private confidential meeting well he's just been telling everyone what you said you're going to ruin it for everyone I thought you know what at this point I had had it to hear so I sat down at a computer and I did a global email to everyone in the prison, so everyone in the prison, all, all the civvy staff, all the governors, and I said, just to let you know, this is who your POA representative is. It's such and such. I had this conversation, and I had this, and I said this, and he went out in the car park, and he told everyone about this confidential meeting. By the way, I won't be back. Bye. What? Sent that email to everyone, including the number one governor. Walked out the prison, never went back. Went, what? Went, went home. Said to myself, I'm done. I'm done with it. I'm not, my mental health is, it's too precious to be, I'm watching my back with murderers and artists and all them and the people who are stabbing me in the back are supposed to be my colleagues. And I'm not going back and I didn't. What year was that? Uh, 2012. So how long had you been in the service? Um, that would have been seven years. Did you feel a relief? Yeah, massive, huge. It was like, it was like a whole way. I broke down. I broke down in, in tears. When I walked in the door, I said, I cannot do it anymore. I'd, I'd had back surgery. I'd had, at this point, I'd had two kids. And when I had my first child, um, we went on, I went onto a work-life balance. So I, w- I had certain days off so I could look after my kids. And when the second one come along, they, and my wife had been on maternity leave, so I didn't need my work-life balance. And then when I went to get it again, they said, no, you can't have it. No reason. They, all they had to do was offer it. I said, what's the reason? We, you just can't have it. It doesn't fit with the business needs of the establishment. I said, well, it has done for the last two years. Well, I've been off with my son. Nope, you can't have it. You've got to work the, the shifts you're working. And it was just a tactic to try and get me to resign. So I just, I just had it. Now, there was things that had happened during that time with the work-life balance where I'd had emails. I had an email saying you can't have it because you can't have... When it was Wednesday, I think it was I wanted Wednesdays off. You can't have Wednesdays off because um, uh, the, it doesn't fit with the establishment. And I was working on the wing with a girl at the time who had just come back from maternity leave and she had put in a work-life balance as well. And I sent her an email and said, uh, have you put in your work-life balance yet? No, I haven't because I knew she wanted Wednesdays off because I knew her husband who worked on it. I said, oh, okay, then that's fine. So I put mine in. So I know mine went in before hers, right? And it's, it's a bit petty, but I know mine had gone in before hers. She got hers and got Wednesdays off. And she was a young officer that wasn't getting paid very much. So then I said to my, my friend, a guy who was my friend, he was a senior officer. And I said, I've got an email from her 
that that proves that I put mine in before her, which proves inequality. You've given a female it, but not me. And if you're going to preach equality, you've got to be equal. That friend turned on me. That friend then told everybody that I had an email that I could go in and get. And they refused me. I rang up and said, I want to come in. I want to come in. I want to come and get all my stuff. Still had stuff in my locker. They said, uh, at the gate, they said, um, so I, I went, I went to the prison. I didn't ring up, sorry. I went to prison. So I want to come and get my stuff. And my picture was in the gate. Corrupt officer. Don't let him in. <gasps> don't let him in. He's banned from the jail. How did that feel? I can't, I'm, like, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. I was broken at this point. I was broken emotionally. I was unemployed with two young kids. They had absolutely broke me. I had, I think I had seven grievances outstanding at this point against number one governor, against um, the, um, uh, the, the said governor. There was, there was four governors I got seven grievances out against and they escorted me like a piece of trash. They wouldn't, they wouldn't let me go on any computers. I wasn't to access any of the systems. So I couldn't go get the emails off that I wanted. They escorted me to where my locker was, got my stuff and escorted me back to the gate like I was, like I was one of the cons. What were all these grievances against governors? Um, so there was the, I had grievance against the number one governor, um, because of the, so the grievance against the number one governor was because of the work-life balance. Um, the grievance I had got against um, another governor was because of the um, mohawk and the... So what they did was they accused me of match, uh, testosterone-fueled macho bravado. I don't even know what that means. And looking like a thug because I'd got a mohawk. And I had said... So I was, I was being a bit of a dick. I said, well, that's not very... That's not inclusive. Talk about being inclusive. That's not inclusive. This girl, there was a girl on our wing that had got pink hair. I said, how come she can have pink hair, but I can't have blue hair? Like, <laughs> uh, what? Where does... So so that was that grievance. There was one against... I can't remember the governor's name. I don't know, I can remember his name. Little short thing. And I had a, I had a grievance against him, but I can't remember what it was for. Um, I, I, do you know what? I've got a feeling it was because of the... I, I raised it afterwards because he was the governor that had instigated the banning me from the wing because I'd said, look, uh, defamation of character. You've put that on there. My friends still work in this prison. They see my picture on here saying I'm corrupt. How does, what does that look like? So I got, I got all these grievances. Some of them are really petty. I'm not, I'm not saying I was hundred percent right in this. I think it takes a real big man to say when you're wrong. I was being petty, but I was being petty because they were being petty. I was being petty because yeah, so, okay, one of them was the governor that was managing um, the, the the POA guy. That was about the, he was the governor that I'd sat in the meeting with um, for having a go at someone. So I'd taken one out against him for sharing information when he shouldn't have done. Um, I was being petty, but I was angry and I was upset. But you know what? They never went anywhere. It just all got forgotten. It got. I, I went to a different jail for them to be heard, and it went up to the under ministry for uh, under minister for justice was dealing with it, and they just denied everything that had happened. They denied it. I couldn't prove it. Couldn't get any of the emails. I requested all my emails through the Freedom of Information, which you can which you can do. Every email I'd ever sent and received while I'd been in the prison service and had them delivered to me in big parcels, thousands of them, um, and. 
I remember sitting down and I started working in residential children's homes at this point. I was loving that job. And I said to my wife, I don't need this anymore. I just need to let it go. It's been a, a year, I think it was down the line. I just need to let this go. So I've still got the emails. I've got them in, I've got them in, I'm not going to say where in case they try and get them. <laughs> I've got, I've got the emails still. So, so yeah, it was, but it still went on after that. When, during that time, so this was actually another grievance. I remember what the other grievance was for now. During that time, I'd applied for another job. I'd put the prison down as references. The number one governor, who had already got one grievance out against, responded to the company that I was applying for and said he'd never heard of me. Never heard of him. They said, oh, we've spoke to governor such and such. He said he's never heard of you. I said, well, that's funny because I was at a meeting last week with him where I was having a grievance <laughs> against him, but he'd never heard of me. They ended up having to go to joint um, the the head uh, MOJ headquarters to to get my records because the prison wouldn't wouldn't even talk about it. So, what advice do you give to people who are thinking about joining the prison service? Now, I don't know. I I I, I seriously don't know. I would say don't. If I'm honest, I would say don't. Um, I think it's very dangerous. I've got friends that are still in who have moved on to different areas, and they're like, oh, I don't have. Nearly every time I speak to an old friend who's still in the prison service, the first thing they say is don't really have prisoner contact now or I'm in the gym and I see the best cons or I work in this office and it's really dangerous and the money that they're paying is terrible because Vanessa said all the experienced officers when Cameron came in they sacked them all brought in the cheap young ones who've got no experience which made it way more dangerous absolutely absolutely that's what they did the people took vets which was the voluntary um retirement which was a huge payout if you had done a decent amount of time. So the ones that took the VEDs were fine. The ones that didn't, then they pushed them and bullied them until they left or tried to get them sacked. Wow. Shocking, isn't it? What made you start a YouTube channel? How long you got? (laughs) (laughs) So during lockdown, I I like my gym. I like my fitness. I like my health stuff. And during lockdown, I built my own gym. Um, Going back to, I trained with- Built your own gym. How'd you do that? I just had a, um, I had a building erected in my back garden, <laughs> like a, like a summer house type thing. Wow. Bought a load of equipment on the, on, in the never, never, zero, zero percent finance. Wow. Kitted the gym out and I started training for myself. Um, and I realized that I could help it. I liked how, I like helping people anyway. Helping people's my thing. One of the reasons I come out of the prison service, I suppose, I think psychologically you realize you're not helping anyone. You just revolving door. Whereas if you come out, you can do a job where you can really help people. Um, so I started advertising that I would do online or face-to-face fitness. One of my friends who has a YouTube channel, Frugal Stew. Um, Shout out to Stew. Yeah, Stewie, man. He wanted me to do some videos. And I said, oh, I, can't, I don't know how to WhatsApp videos and stuff. It's, it's hard work. He said, well, just create a YouTube channel and upload them as a unlisted and then send me the link and I can just watch them on there. And that's where it started just doing that and it kind of it grew from there <laughs> do you put any of your prison officer stories up anywhere i, I haven't i've never i've never really told i don't really know what <laughs> a bit like now i don't really know what i can and can't say because you think when you start talking there's people that i know that are still in and i don't want to give anyone a bad name because i'll be honest there is some very very good prison officers um and i've still got some friends who are good friends who still do the job and they were to the letter um so I don't want the stories. People want to hear the, the rubbish stories. People want to hear the, the dirty stories, the, the ones that you're saying, tell these. 
as a as a job for the majority of my time in the prison service, it was amazing. I met I met some good people, but I will say that the ones who I'm still friends with now are two or three that I stay in contact with. Other than that, I just lost contact with everyone because the majority of them were just no good. And I saw you on Ricky Colleen's channel. So huge thank you to Ricky Colleen for organizing this interview and people check out his channel. There's a few things we mentioned. We mentioned um, Vanessa, so the prison governor. Check out that podcast on this channel. Holly, we've done three or four with Holly, prison governor. Really hard hitting, both Vanessa and Holly, fantastic storytellers. Tell the viewers what your channel is called. So my channel is called The Fitness Hutch. We do health and fitness, well-being, mental health. We have a mental health nurse on board. Um, we do regular live podcasts. Um, and we do a lot of mindset stuff as well. So yeah, the fit such. All of Paul's links will be in the description box. Uh, are you available on social for people to contact? I am, yeah. I've, I have um, TikTok. I don't really know much about it. I think you have to look for Paul Hutchinson on TikTok because uh, they wouldn't let me have the fitness hutch. I don't know why. Um, Instagram, I'm the fitness hutch and Facebook, I'm the fitness hutch. So. Yeah, and uh, we mentioned John Sutton as well. The Masonic palm ticklers officers <laughs> tried to kill him. During his job, check out that podcast we did. And he's also got a free book series out about that. My dad's read it. I've read it. It's mind-blowing. Check out John Sutton's books as well. Huge thank you for joining us today. Huge thank you for Joe and James coming out and filming these. And much love and respect wherever you are in the world. Let us know in the comments what you think about this podcast. And thanks for tuning in. And we look forward to seeing you next time. And most of all... Huge thank you to Paul for coming out, man. Thank you very yeah, much yeah, for having cheers. me. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Give us a hug, brother. Ah, yes, cheers. Nice. Yeah, yeah, well done. Yeah, enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Congratulations to our podcast, John Sutton, whose book, HMP Manchester Prison Officer, is now available worldwide. We've done a podcast with John and what he went through with the Freemason prison officers working against him, putting his life on the line, is mind-boggling. So the subtitle is, I survived terrorist, murderers, rapists, and Freemason officer attacks in strange ways and wormwood scrubs. John G. Sutton. So this book includes drugs, riot, shanks, dirty protests, violent Freemason guards, self-mutilation and suicides. Welcome to the brutal truth about life as a prison officer. So with a career spanning 10 years inside of the walls of Britain's most infamous prisons, Manchester Strangeways and London's Wormwood Scrubs, John Sutton has experienced it all. Attacked by the Soho vampire and insane killer, assaulted by the Cambridge rapist, threatened by the IRA, beaten, persecuted and prosecuted by Freemason officers. John Sutton survived to reveal the heart-hitting truth in his jaw-dropping memoir. From the get-go, he just takes you right inside into a conflict and you just cannot put the book down all the way through. If you've ever wondered what a career in the prison service is really like, then this searingly honest account will take you onto the landings housing Britain's most dangerous prisoners. Accompany John as he carries the keys that lock up murderers, rapists, gangsters, paedophiles, terrorists, addicts, and the mentally ill. 
as well as the ever-present threat from the inmates, John had to endure a conspiracy of violence from his own colleagues who were Freemasons. Nothing can be more dangerous in prison than the staff not having your back. Horrifying, harrowing and humorous, John's book will take you on an unforgettable journey into a netherworld of drugs, violence and hostile Freemasons. It's even got the Masonic compass symbol on the cover. So check it out, available worldwide. John Sutton's book, HMP Manchester Prison Officer. It's an e-book, paperback and audiobook. I kill you! I yeah! A knife and a caution, all that like. Yeah! And he's looking at me and we went white and there he's gone like. <laughs> what is it about a tough guy that fascinates us? Imagine I'm hearing that, I'm thinking I'm not going down today. If I go down today, yeah, I'm dead. We're bringing you the very best of our interviews with Britain's hardest men. They made the mistake of bringing Billy Cubs, iron bars and knives to a gunfight. No Rules Fighter Bash, Stephen the Devil French and my best friend, Wildman. Over two hours of terrifying tales of punch-ups, stabbings. That's what happens in that world. You, you leave people long enough, they get enough rope chain themselves. Attempted murders and exceptional all-round hardness. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I've got some exciting news to announce. Michael Francis is coming back to tour the UK in 2024. The remade Mantor, the Michael Francis story. Michael Francis, once named one of the 50 most significant mob bosses in the USA by Fortune magazine, and a former member of the notorious Colombo crime family, will take you deep into the world of organized crime, sharing captivating tales and insights into the mafia's past, present, and future. Join us for an unforgettable evening with Michael Francis, the original Goodfella, as he exclusively sits down with myself, Sean Atwood. With me as the host, there's going to be a no-holes-barred exploration of Michael Francis's life, including his numerous arrests and jury trials that ultimately led to his pleading guilty to a federal racketeering charge, a 10-year prison sentence, and $15 million in restitution. You will have the unique opportunity to ask questions during an audience Q&A session, making this event a must-see for true crime enthusiasts and anyone curious about the underworld. Don't miss this explosive In Conversation with Michael Francis. Live on stage in the UK, this exclusive in-person event will be held in various locations in the UK, Ireland and Scotland. Link in the description box below this video if you want to grab yourself a ticket. Back to the podcast. Cheers.